What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based off New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, The Gallery is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase by using the code 15OFF. That's number 15, capital O, capital F, capital F. Go to thegallery.com. That's T-H-E-G-A-L-R-Y.com. So your wall will never be born again. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. And you're listening to the Monster Legend Podcast. In the dark of the night Comes a shimmering light To guide you All along the twisted roads In your mind darkness goes And the whispering trees Blow a dark haunting breeze Fight through you Telling tales young and old I hope that you'll enjoy the show Welcome to Monster Legend Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner, and today is Monster Legends of Virginia. Today we have a special co-host, Mr. Steve Stockton. Steve Stockton is a veteran outdoorsman, author, has been investigating the unexplained for over 35 years. Originally from the mountains of East Tennessee, Steve has traveled all over the country and many parts of the world, and now makes his home in Portland, Oregon near the wilds and Bigfoot country of the Pacific Northwest. Steve cites as his influence his gypsy witch grandmother told multitudes of legends and stories as a small child, as well as authors such as Frank Edwards, John Keel, Charles Ford, Lowell Coleman, Ivan Sanderson, Colin Wilson, and Nick Redfern. His published books include Strange Things in the Woods and More Strange Things in the Woods, a collection of true paranormal encounters, as well as the autobiographical My Strange World, where he talks about his own experiences dating back to childhood. Steve is currently at work on a book of ghost stories and also a book about myths and legends of the Great Smoky Mountains, both expected to be available by fall of 2020. Welcome to the show, Steve. Wow, Tanner, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I don't know about that fall of 2020 on those books because fall is just almost here. Hopefully have the, the Smoky Mountain ones out, but we'll see how it goes. But thanks for having me on. So we're going to talk uh, Virginia today, huh? Yeah, Virginia. It is so hard to look up stuff for Virginia because everything comes up for like West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, I've had the West. same problem. I've done a lot of research on Mothman, and uh, every time I try to find something interesting in Virginia, it seems like, all the cryptids are over in West Virginia. Yeah, but, uh, I've that Virginia does have a lot of ghost stories. That's one thing it's got going for it. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of ghost stories. stories. 
So West Virginia got the cryptids and Virginia kept the ghosts, I guess the way that went. Yep. I know there's some a couple there I found like a, like a werewolf and there's like a beast of some hill, I think. Mm-hmm. And a, there was that one lady who found a seen a Bigfoot with a baby. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was like 2015 or so. It was a news report that a lady had called 911, claimed she saw a, a, apparently a female Bigfoot carrying a baby Bigfoot. But I, I never did hear what happened with that or if there was any follow-up on it. And that's the sad thing about that. A lot of times you'll hear an interesting report, but then you never hear what happened or if there are any further sightings. I guess not or would have been in the news too. I found, I think she said she was like part part of the Department of Defense or something. Uh, I found one article about it. Uh, I worked with says a woman who claimed that she saw a big a Bigfoot and its mother revealed on Wednesday that she had worked for the United States Department of Defense prior to her retirement and she added new details to the alleged sighting. Hmm. Interesting. I think that was also Bedford, that area over in yeah. there. Yeah, Bedford. I don't want to do... Have you ever seen any tracks or anything where you're researching? Uh, I have uh, over in Washington State. I was uh, in the. I'm, I live in Portland, Oregon, and mm-hmm. Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia or the Willamette River there. And uh, I'd gone up there. It's been a couple of years ago, and uh, I think it was in like May or so. But went high enough there was still a snow line, and uh, got up. I don't remember what elevation I was at, but where it was, there was still snow, and. Uh, person I was with and I found some very very large bear footprints in the snow I mean can't say that it was Bigfoot but it had big feet whatever it was so I'm assuming that area is just it's a hotbed um, basically it's in the shadow of Mount St. Helens there where a lot of sightings there uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Ape Canyon attack that happened back in the, I think it was the 1920s where some miners Got trapped in a cabin there by a group of Bigfoot and uh, attacked overnight. Bigfoot uh, threw rocks on their cabin and even at one point tried to reach in and uh, grab an axe through a a crack in the the wall. And uh, that's just in that general area there. Uh, When Mount St. Helens erupted back in the early 80s, that wiped a lot of those areas out. But there's a, a team out here, I think they're actually from Northern California, that have been doing research in that area trying to locate the, the site of that cabin because if they can find it uh, one of the guys I can't remember his name off the top of my head but he wrote a book about the incident he was one of the miners he claims to have shot and killed one of the beasts that was up on a, a ledge about 300 feet and it fell down so they think if, if they can locate the cabin there might be a Bigfoot skeleton there so mm-hmm. interesting to see how that turns out Man. I like to find that skeleton. Yeah, would that be something? Now, have you ever heard of any giant skeletons found over there on the Cumberland Plateau in that area? Uh, I, I think I've seen a couple of stories about it. Yeah, I but, heard of one. There was an old man that lived there in Jamestown. He's a friend of my father's, and he was ancient when I was a kid. He was probably in his 80s when I was a teenager, and he had lived over in the woods over there. 
uh, in Fentress County all his life. And uh, he claimed that back in the, this would have been the late 20s, early 30s, him and his brothers, uh, they would get out and hunt ginseng and arrowheads and things like that. And they were digging around under an Indian bluff and they found a skeleton. He said it was probably between 10 and 12 feet tall, buried inside under this bluff. And um, a storm blew up. And uh, they, they were kind of spooked anyway, so they decided to get out of there and come back. And um, it was several days before they could get back to it. But by the time they did get back, it was gone. There was a, a hole there. Somebody had taken the skeleton. And the really curious thing about it, he said it only had one eye right in the middle of its head. Oh. So uh, a, a giant cyclops skeleton in Fentress County. That I'd, I'd love to know where that ended up. Me too. I'll have to know about the story about how it got there, who, who it was, whose family yeah. was. Kind of race of giants. There's, I think there were people in there before the Native Americans, though. The, I know a, a relic hunter that found an, an axe, a stone axe over there that had dated back uh, like around the Ice Age or somewhere right uh -huh. after that. So I, I think there was... Uh, some sort of other peoples in there prior to the, the Native Americans. Depending on who you believe, they supposedly came across the land bridge, the Bering yeah. Strait, when uh, everything was connected before continental drift. But, yeah, there's... That whole area over there, just, it has a weird feeling. I've heard some other Bigfoot stories from over there. One uh, just outside Jamestown there, uh, friend of my dad's had a farm and somebody on the next farm over which was several miles away had had a fairly serious accident with a chainsaw and they called an ambulance and when the ambulance came through the area there they were running a code when they came back out taking the guy to the hospital probably there in Jamestown and uh, said that the, the siren disturbed something in the woods and it was like calling back and making this whoop whoop sound and uh, later, somebody played for him a recording of what was supposed to be a Bigfoot calling. And he said, that's it. That's what I heard in the woods over there after that ambulance left out. So that's there's some rugged country over there, that's for sure. And places yeah. that few people have set foot, if ever, I think, <laughs> some of those places. But it's beautiful. There's a lot of creeks and rivers and uh, natural arches and things like that, a lot of... A lot of old places over there, uh, some Indian mounds. Uh, used to find a lot of artifacts. I could go to my grandparents' farm. Uh, when they first rain, after they plowed the field, you could walk. Now, this is 40, 50 years ago. You could walk the field and, and find arrowheads laid on top of the ground after the field was plowed and then the first rain. It would uncover them there. Yeah, you used to uh, go to, down, the river, like down by the river and like find arrowheads all over the place. Yeah, and uh, another thing, same guy that uh, was telling the story about the uh, Cyclops skeleton, uh, he took me geode hunting one time. There was, I don't know where it was. I wish I knew. I'd like to go back to him. He took me to a dry creek bread, and we walked several miles back in there and found all kinds of just real nice round geodes about the size of grapefruits. And uh, some of them, you could shake them. You could hear the crystals in them and took them home and hammered them open and uh, just full of quartz crystals. So there's a lot of neat geological features over there, too. Cool. Are you big on geology? 
Nah, not really. Just uh, I, I enjoy especially crystals and things like that. And that's something that you have in Virginia that's kind of unique to there. I know they find them in Virginia, uh, North Carolina, and Georgia are the, the stone fairy crosses. Have you ever seen those? It's a type of crystal that forms a natural cross in the ground. And I suppose if you dig one up and then carry it with you or wear it, it'll, it'll give you protection from the fae or the... Uh, elementals that uh, are associated with the Fae. I've, I've seen a few of them. I think I've still got one somewhere. But that, that's a real interesting feature that comes from Virginia. Uh, another Bigfoot encounter, that or at least I think that's what it was that I had, was in Virginia along the uh, Appalachian Trail. I was near um, Damascus, Virginia. I think that's the Jefferson National Forest that the trail passes through there. And uh, I was in there at night, and I wasn't really on the trail. There's there's some regular trails there, and you've got the Virginia Creeper Trail and some of that. But I was just kind of off in the woods messing around. I had a Garmin GPS, so I wasn't worried about getting lost even at night. And uh, got in this one area, and I just sometimes you get that feeling like you're being watched, or there's maybe a, a large cat or something out there keeping an eye on you, some kind of predator that's following you silently. And I started getting this weird feeling. And then all of a sudden, there I'd heard some of the, the tree knocks and a couple of whoops coming from, from different directions. And then all of a sudden, I started getting pelted with rocks. These were little round river rocks, not very big, maybe about silver dollar size. And that's that area of the trail, it's several miles from the, any creek or river that would have those kind of rocks in it. Yeah. And uh, they were coming out of the woods from a couple different directions. And rather than being thrown in an arc, like normally if somebody were lobbing stones at you, they seemed to be on a straight vector. And I didn't really feel them hit me, but I heard them hitting the ground. And I looked down, and then about that time, another one hit me and bounced off. And I picked it up, and it was really warm, almost hot to the touch. And I thought, whatever this is, it doesn't want me in here. And if it's, you know, throwing rocks at me, that's I'm going to. He take heed to that so I turned around went back another way and things kind of settled down but from from what I gathered and from people that I've talked to in that area that's almost a Bigfoot encounter or sounds like one anyway especially with the tree knocks and uh, because uh, big cats and, and things that will track you in the woods they don't they don't knock on trees yeah you might see a big cat coming it would cars I know they like to hit come from behind you you don't see yeah, them like to sneak up on they're totally silent and they like to to drag you off and uh, a lot of times they'll they'll if they take a person they'll put the body up in a tree and then come back for it later but uh it makes you wonder a lot of these missing person cases so i've heard it speculated that they think some of that is big cats but even if a big cat takes you and just drags you off it, there's going to be torn clothing there's going to be blood there's going to be signs of a scuffle there's going to be some struggle i think yeah. but uh, in a lot of these disappearances there's absolutely no trace of anything left behind there's been several in the smokies and i don't know of any in that area in virginia there's a lot of people that have gone missing off the appalachian trail I don't don't know about that particular area there but i've, I've seen some big cats and there's also rumors particularly like over in that area where, where you live there in uh on the Cumberland Plateau, there's, and I know people listening that live there will say, it's not the plateau, it's the plateau. I've heard that all my life. 
But uh, there's some black cats over there, some really big black, uh, they, they call them panthers. Some kind of a, a mountain lion or something that's jet black. I've caught sight of one. I didn't get a good look at it, but there was something big and jet black moving through the woods. And I've heard other stories. And there was even a time, this was back in the 70s, there was one that they claimed had ventured out of the mountains and was down into the Knox County area there near uh, West Knoxville. Some people had sighted a, a large black cat. These things are big. I mean, they're a lot bigger than any kind of domestic cat. You wouldn't confuse the two. Yeah. But, you know, science tell you that there, there is no black panthers in that area, but there are. They also tell you that uh, certain snakes that aren't there that I've seen, like cottonmouth, they're supposedly not in that area, but I've seen cottonmouth in, mm-hmm. um, cottonmouth. in East Tennessee. Um, same with the uh, rattlesnakes. I've run into more copperheads than anything else, but there's a couple places over there in Fentress County. I was messing around in some rocks one time, and I heard a very distinct rattlesnake rattle. If you ever hear one, you, you never forget what it sounds like. Now, when I lived in uh, Nevada, you know, got used to, to hearing them out there in the desert, and it's it's very distinct, and that's that's a good thing about a rattlesnake. They'll at least try to warn you away. Or copperhead, if you don't watch where you're going, you'll be right on top of it before you know it. Yeah. I remember hearing stories about black panthers and how they would hear, like, hear, hear a woman screaming in the woods. It's probably a pan, black panther. I get trying to, get to come get Yeah, it. I've heard that, that there are big cats like that that will make a sound uh, like a woman screaming. But then there's also other cases where they've heard well, it sounds like a woman screaming and there there was no cat or anything depended on. So, uh, more interesting legends there. But or like uh, a, a baby crying. That's one. Yeah. And uh, that one, I've heard a lot of stories about that being heard coming out of caves and things. And uh, I don't know what that is, if that's something trying to catch people. I mean, if you think about it, if you're making it sound like somebody screaming or a baby crying, normal human reaction is going to be, I'm going to go see what that is. And then if it's some sort of predator that wants to make a meal out of you, that you know they're luring you in. But a lot of a lot of crying baby stories. That's uh, another thing that I've noticed in a lot of my. I don't really call myself an investigator. I'm more of a researcher. I like I'm more legend tripper. I think, yeah. but uh, just about I know every state and a lot of different places. In in some states, they have a crybaby bridge legend where whatever the, the tale is usually a little different but the, the basic story is a woman went crazy for whatever reason threw her baby off a bridge and then there's usually a dual haunting there you can uh, look down in the water off the bridge and either see or hear the baby crying and then also sometimes you'll encounter the woman apparition walking along the bridge calling out for her baby yeah that's a that Lorna legend from yeah, Mexico. Yeah, same thing out of, out of Mexico there. Uh, different versions of it. Some real well-known ones in uh, Texas. And uh, there's, I know there's a couple in Tennessee. I think there's one near Kingsport. And then there's one uh, in the Johnson County area up around uh, Mountain City in that area. There's a, a bridge up there where there's a, a crybaby bridge. But it's interesting how those legends happened in different places and not any real relation of that it's the same story with slight variations the way those mm-hmm. things get passed around it's kind of like the 
the, the Vanishing Hitchhiker. There's those are all over the country. There was one there in the Smokies, uh, Roaring Fork Motor Trail. There's a girl hitchhiking that if you pick her up, she directs you where to go. But then when you get there, suddenly she's not there anymore. Same story. Go to the door, knock at the door. An old lady comes to the door, shows you a picture. Yeah, that's the girl. Yeah, that's my daughter. She died years ago on her way home from a school dance, and she's still trying to get home. And in some other variations of that, uh, the girl will be cold and will borrow a coat or a sweater. But when she disappears, that disappears with her. And then later the next day, when the person comes back to visit where she's buried, the coat or sweater or scarf or whatever will be folded neatly and left on top of the grave. So <laughs> makes her interesting stories anyway. Now, some of those legends, I'm not sure how much truth there is in them because there's several archetypes like that that you hear repeated over and over with, with only the locations changing but i think somewhere you know there's at least one that has more truth to it than the others and that's kind of how these legends form and then spread um in your research on virginia did you read anything about the richmond vampire i've, I've heard the story about that that's there's seems to be prevalence of vampires in appalachia there's several different vampire stories and uh, somewhere they even uh, dug up the, the corpse and uh, cut the heart out and burned it to, to keep it from coming back. There was, uh, I think, another one I read about in Virginia where a girl had died. And then these are smaller sisters kept getting sick. And uh, the little girl told them that the sister that had passed away was coming to visit her at night. So they dug up the grave sure enough opened the coffin and even though the girl had been buried for months she hadn't decomposed or anything she looked fresh still had uh, pinkness to her skin and everything and they uh i think that was one of the ones that they cut the heart out of and burned it and then that stopped the visitations that the smaller sister was experiencing and then she got better so it makes you wonder Yeah, uh, I read this one story about how I think it was in New Hampshire where that they cut out the they dug up the body and cut the heart out and they like made a tea. They burned the heart and they made tea and everyone drank it because everyone was um having syphilis uh, not syphilis but um what's it called the um tuberculosis. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's sounds like a, a common story for that area. That's vampires and, and werewolf tales. The, the guru, loop guru, seem to be a lot of those in uh, New England. And then, of course, Appalachia goes all the way from there. It starts in Georgia and goes all the way into Maine. But yeah. along the Appalachian Trail, you get a lot of vampires, you get a lot of. Uh, I hesitate to call them werewolves, but that's really what it is. It's it's based in those legends that, that came over from Europe. But uh, several instances like that were... And then uh, some of it I've heard later was what thought to be vampires was actually people that had been buried alive. They uh, One place they'd interred a grave, and uh, the girl was uh, had been... There was evidence that she'd been clawing at the inside of her coffin, and had pulled handfuls of her hair out. See, only imagine. That just, <laughs> so, I wouldn't <laughs> like that. You're being buried alive. You know, that's that's uh, 
where the, the term dead ringer and some of that comes from years ago before embalming and things so more well-to-do folk would actually uh, have an apparatus where they could run a, a string down into the coffin and a, a bell on ground above and then somebody would sit be paid to sit and listen for the next two or three nights to make sure they didn't uh, wake up and ring the bell yeah, yeah there's a whole like uh um business started with that like security um graves the bells and i think one with a whole breathing system of tubes mm-hmm. and there's one with a like a window and you see down into the grave yeah yeah there's that was a somewhat common practice i think during the turn of the last century uh remember there one time in knoxville when they were uh, building the, the coliseum there back in the 70s they had to uh, move a graveyard and they dug up a, a baby's coffin that had a, a glass window in it and you could see inside and apparently no, I, I didn't see it i just heard about it i knew one of the guys that worked on that construction project he said that it looked really well preserved that it didn't look like it'd been in the ground probably at that time about 40 or 50 years hmm. but, uh, i don't know that that's kind of creepy to me <laughs> yeah. but of course if you bury him who's going to see it anyway i guess that was it was probably i'm guessing here now uh probably an infant that had died of any of the, the things that went around about that time spanish flu or cholera or smallpox and so they sealed the coffin but left a, a window in there so that people could pay their last respects. That'd be the only reason I'd think about it, to, to put a window in a coffin, something you're going to put in the ground anyway. Yeah. And that way, they'll be less likely to catch whatever it was. And that's, I, I see that everywhere. I like to go to graveyards, especially the older ones. And a lot of times you'll see where something wiped out a whole family. You see mom, dad, two or three kids of various ages, and they'll all have died right around the same date. And uh, out here in Portland, there's a huge, huge mausoleum. It's uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, on the West Coast. It's called Wilhelm's. And uh, in there, they have a, a children's section. And it's just just so sad to go in there. And you'll see, you know, whole, like I said, there's, there's one area in particular that's all indoors. And had uh, like a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old, all siblings. And they had all passed away just within a day or two of each other. And if you look back historically, that was when one of those things was ravaging through. Kind of like what we're going through now, but I think it was even worse back then because didn't didn't have uh, anywhere near the, the medical science and things that we have now to help keep people safe. It just kind of did what it did. And I think people even wore masks and things. Of course, you see the old plague doctor mask, you know, with the crow beak looking thing on there where they they put herbs and, and things in there that they thought would uh, protect them. Not sure how well that worked, but interesting mm-hmm. nonetheless. It's very, it's very interesting. There's another grave in Virginia, and I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it's around Abingdon. Oh. The guy that was buried standing up. Have you ever heard of that one? Um, No. I, what's it about? I just... I don't think there's anything necessarily paranormal about it, but it's just unusual in the fact that he didn't want to be buried underground 
and he did, and he wanted to be buried standing up. So there's it's an above ground crypt, but the coffin is standing on end. And I think there was a story one time that they had uh, put him in there upside down, the head first, <laughs> instead of standing up, and that uh, his widow or somebody was. Uh, kept seeing his ghost and that's what it was they figured out that they had him upside down and once they fixed that the visitation stopped but the, i've seen the, the grave i, I want to say I, I believe it's near abingdon now that's that's a, a cool place to visit um you got uh, the martha washington inn there in abingdon i think they just call it the martha now but it, it previously been the martha washington inn it's been everything it was a girl's school at one time uh, it was a field hospital during the Civil War. They stored a lot of bodies in there during the winter until the ground thought out enough for them to bury them. And uh, it's a fairly elegant uh, hotel and, and restaurant now. They have a lot of corporate meetings and things there. But uh, it has a long history of ghost sightings. I've stayed there several times, had some strange experiences. Um, there's a woman that they've seen on the, one of the upper floors wearing period dress from the 1800s that uh it seems to she walks but she's about a foot off the ground and her, her shoes are muddy oh and uh, there, there's an old gentleman there that's the concierge and he's a wealth of information he knows all the stories and stuff and in the past they were always kind of reticent to talk about it but anymore i think with the kind of a renaissance that we've experienced in the paranormal, especially on TV and, and cable shows and stuff, they're more apt to talk about it. And uh, it's uh, not a, a bothersome thing like they're afraid to keep guests away anymore. If anything, it, it probably draws more people in. But sure. uh, I spent the night in the, two of the, the most haunted rooms on two separate occasions. And the only thing that happened about 3 a.m., between 2 and 3 a.m., there was a sudden knocking on the walls, and it went all the way around the room. It's like, knock, 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 knock. Uh. And then there was this smell, and the only way I can describe it, it, it reminded me of like a, a really dirty, wet dog. Yeah. And I, I told the concierge about that, and he said, that's the spirit of, and he named who? It's a soldier. And he said, you think about it, um, those uniforms that they wore were wool, yeah. Uh, wool pants and wool coat. And he said, they're out in all kinds of weather. They, you know, they don't bathe every day during a war. And he said, you think about that. That's that's what people have reported smelling in there. And he said, I believe that it's the wool uniform that the guy had on, just, you know, dirty and soaked in perspiration and wet. And that's what it smells like. But I experienced that. It was just, it was real sudden, real strong, and it was just gone. Wow. And then right across the street from that, you've got the Barter Theater, which is a um, mm-hmm. famous theater in that area. A lot of uh, performers from the last century performed there and stuff. And there's people that I think every theater that I've ever been in anyway has at least one ghost. There's just something about a theater. But uh, that one's very haunted. And uh, I can't think of the, the actress's name, but they've seen her in the Martha Washington Inn which is where the stars stayed. And then they've seen her ghost also across the street in the barter theater. She sits up in the the, the cheap seats and uh, they, they've caught her up there before when they were practicing, rehearsing. Mm-hmm. Um, I got these pictures from 
Mothra Washington Inn. This place is looks so beautiful. Love to go there. Yeah, it's it's really nice and it's uh, decorated well and just very, very fancy. It's a little on the, the pricey side, I think. Uh, one of the suites I stayed in, and this has been 15 years ago or so, it was about $300 a night back then. But it was it was a full suite with a, a like a seating area and a bedroom and uh, fireplaces and uh, have a lot of amenities there. You have a, a flask of brandy uh, on the table waiting for you and things like that there for the fire. And there's uh, historical books and things in there. And there. There's a lot of other haunted places in Abington. They have uh, a lot of the restaurants and, and places like that have ghost stories it's it's a cool place to go to if, if you like ghosts that, that whole area have you heard about the werewolf of henrico county I've, I've heard the story i don't really i'm not versed enough on it to talk about it but i've, I've heard that story that's i believe that's if i'm not mistaken that's over in the tidewater area of Virginia. They, they have some strange things over there. There's spook lights around Norfolk and uh, a lot of UFO activity in that area as well. Now, I've heard people say that, well, that, that may be due to the naval base, but is it one of ours or one of theirs? You never know, you know, with the <laughs> anytime the military's involved, if it's something we have that's secret or if it's uh, something extraterrestrial observing what we're up to yeah well people don't know what it is it's still a ufo even yeah. if it's one of ours yeah that's kind of a common misconception that you say ufo that just means it's unidentified that doesn't mean it's a flying saucer i've never actually seen a flying saucer but i've seen plenty of ufos and that i couldn't identify that didn't look like a plane or that weren't marked like a plane or didn't behave like a plane and one of my most unusual sightings was when I was uh, living in Las Vegas. Um, I was working at the casino at the time, and I didn't get off until about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I was had a girl that worked for me. I was a manager at uh, Treasure Island. I was giving her a ride home down in Henderson, which is just south of Las Vegas there off the end of the Strip. And Tanner, the area where we went through there, this was south of Mandalay Bay, headed down toward the, the south end of the Strip there. There was some sort of triangular craft. Well, it didn't look like it was very far off the ground. I'm guessing it's under a thousand feet anyway, more maybe five or six hundred feet. It was jet black. It had no lights on it. It made no sound, and it was just kind of hovering over a power station there down oh. in the strip. And that end of the strip, particularly that time of the morning, there's not much going on at all down there. And I actually pulled over. And uh, the girl was getting right to. She saw it too. She's like, "What is that, Steve?" And I'm like, "You got me." And we're standing there looking at it. And this thing, it had to be as long as a football field. Mm. And uh, said silent, uh, no lights, no noise, nothing. And then all of a sudden, while we're there looking at it, it just kind of tilted, like the the nose part of the triangle kind of tilted up and it was gone i mean but it didn't didn't make any noise or anything but it went up and out of sight now again that's very close to area 51 and uh, groom like test bed and places where they test aircraft and uh, things like that they're ours but who knows there's been other things sighted out there too and then depending on who or what you believe conspiracy theory wise there's uh 
remnants of alien craft and maybe even bodies and things stored at Area 51 and that some of our modern aircraft uh, have been reverse engineered from technology they found aboard these uh, recovered alien crafts. So, hmm. you know, it's interesting to think about anyway. Yeah, I read things about an underground alien base in like Nevada or um, New Mexico. Yeah. I think uh, it's supposed to be one in uh, Dulce, if I'm saying it right, New Mexico. Yeah. And uh, that's something that you hear more and more of now is uh, people finding these uh, bases. There's supposedly one in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, not too far from, from where I live. My parents worked in, in Oak Ridge. They met while on the Manhattan Project. Uh, my dad worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And uh, I heard a story from a gentleman that on the lake out there, not too far up uh, Melton Hill from where Oak Ridge National Laboratory is, he claimed he saw a plane, small plane, like a private plane, flying toward a bluff, a mountain. And he thought, you know, that plane's going to crash. And he said, just before it got there, the rocks kind of opened up and the plane <laughs> went inside the mountain mm. and closed back. And this guy, he's, he's sober as a judge. He was an older gentleman, had a no use to try and wind me up or just, you know, we were talking about things that we'd seen out there around the plants um, behind the fence. One time, Oak Ridge was a secret city. It didn't exist on any maps. The whole city was behind a fence, and you had to have a permit to get in and out. This was back in the 40s during the war. Yeah. But uh, I think there's still some unusual things go on out there. The, a lot of the plants have closed down. Uh, no, uh, K-25 was the designation they gave the uranium enrichment plant there, but all that's been moved down. X-10 was Oak Ridge National Laboratory. That's still there, and they're still doing research out there. I don't know on what. And then uh, Y-12, is uh, they're working on, uh, I think they do laser-guided weaponry out there, so who knows what's, what's around there, but... It's an interesting place to grow up. Oh, it's, not, oh, it's beautiful out there, though. Yeah, I, I love East Tennessee. I miss it. I'm headed back. I've got a couple of uh, script, movie script deals in the works. Yeah. Once one of those closes, I can't can't say anything about it right now, but once that's finalized, uh, I'm headed back east. I'm going to buy a house up in the mountains. I've got my eye on a, a log house uh, up near Gatlinburg. Tennessee that I'm gonna go back. I'm, I'm tired of the east of the west coast. What's it like writing a script compared to writing a book? Well, for me anyway, it's it's the easiest writing you'll ever do, just because of the format. There's a lot of you know you have the the, the action lines, the settings, and the dialogue and stuff. A script format. If you've ever looked at one. It's single page, single side, one page per page of script, and then it's everything's double spaced, and a lot, a lot of white space on there. But uh, in in my experience, it's the easiest writing, but the hardest to sell. And uh, the the formula, that's general rule of thumb, is uh, one page of script equals one minute of screen time. So even a long you know, like a two-hour movie, 120 pages, but again, that's single-sided, double-spaced. It's only probably equivalent to like 40 pages of book writing. Yeah. But uh, book writing, I enjoy. I've written 
those two books and uh, enjoyed that. I've also written some children's books and things under pen name. I did that to keep it separate. I didn't want some of my young adult readers to get a hold of some of my other stuff and read something that was going to scare them and, and put them off. But um, I, I enjoy it. It's just, it's what I do. I don't know so much as I picked it or it picked me, but um, I went to University of Tennessee and started out in uh, pre-law in uh, doing those classes and actually got accepted into law school at Vanderbilt. But the summer before I was supposed to start at Vandy, I clerked at a, a law firm there in Knoxville. They handled uh, medical malpractice, personal injury, and products liability cases. So I had to deal with some really nasty stuff. I mean, like people that had been injured or killed due to uh, medical malpractice, doctors, negligence, and things like that. And they were the one that were sponsoring me to go to Vandy. And in turn, I would have had to sign a, a contract to, after I graduated, to work with them for a certain number of years. And I just had a change of heart. I just I can't see myself doing this for the next, you know, 20, 30 years. So I mm-hmm. uh, didn't go to law school, went back, switched my degree to English with an art minor because I like to, to write and I enjoy art. But it's... For the type of writing I do, it's really overkill. A uh, few freshmen, English, uh, learned grammar rules and, and composition and maybe a couple of creative writing classes. That's that's really all you need to write. If you can talk or type, you can you can write. And it's uh, the hardest part is just actually doing it. Just find the time to sit down. I've got the, a discipline that I put myself through. I write four hours a day, every day, whether I feel like it or not. And uh, the way I avoid writer's block, I have about six different projects that I'm working on. Right now I'm working on two books. I've got two other film scripts that I'm working on. And then I've got some smaller articles and things that I write here and there for. So I've always got something I can work on. And that's how I avoid writer's block. But yeah, advice to any writer, just sit down and do it. Just what anything. Write, write a page a day, you know, and after so long you'll have enough for a book. Now, whether it's a good book or one that anybody would read or not, that remains to be seen. But it's like playing an instrument or anything like that. The more you do it, the more you practice, the easier it comes to you. And um, whereas I would struggle with that at first, it's it's a breeze now. It's like, you know, four hours go by like nothing, especially mm-hmm. when I'm in the moment, in the zone. And as you can probably tell, but as much as I talk, I'm, I'm that way with my writing, too. So, uh I heard that um, because of writing, that it's like you go to a an old store, like you go in every day, and something might be going for like a whole year. Nothing might be the same thing every day, but maybe one day something new or good will come up. You know. Yeah. And the really exciting thing, especially with with fiction and things like that, is the characters come to life literally and. I'll outline stuff and like some of the, of the scripts and things I've wrote. I've outlined the story, but once I get in there and I'm actually having the characters talk and interact with one another, sometimes it'll take off in a way that I've never even considered when I was outlining it. And I love it when that happens because it's like, you know, wow, these, that I think it gives characters more depth and more believability. And uh, another thing, I, some years ago, I wrote some scripts for uh, there's a little indie film company there in, in uh, West Knoxville that was wanted to do some horror shorts. 
and uh, I had some short stories that they liked, so I adapted them in the script. And then I got to go on location when they were filming those. And that was the strangest deja vu type feeling. I'm watching them film these scenes, and then here's actors and actresses saying the lines that I'd written. And it's like, you know what they're going to say and how they're going to react and what they do before they do it. And it just, it messes with your head, but it was so much fun. And um, that was really where I got an interest in film because I'd just written short stories and things up to then. And uh, I'd had screenwriting classes, but I uh, never really tried much with it. And when I adapted those short stories into scripts, it was like, okay, I, I enjoy this. And then when I went on set to watch it being filmed, which was at my request, they said, well, you, you can come and do that, but we're going to put you to work too. I ended up, um, at one point I was sitting in the back of a car that they'd taken the seat out of, holding a camera, pointed up toward the guy driving the car. They'd taken the back seat out and had the trunk open. There was a sound guy wedged in the floor back there next to me. And, uh, then had a, a PA production assistant girl in the back with the trunk open, sitting on our legs, waving traffic around with a flashlight. So mm-hmm. it, it was like boot camp for uh, filmmaking. And that was where I really got interested. So right now, uh, I produce videos and things for my channel and uh, for some other YouTube channels. But uh, I love what I do, but, but writing is really my first love, I think. How are, how are your YouTube channels going? Oh, doing good. Uh, my personal channel, 13 Past Midnight, it's a little over a year old. I'm, I think I've got about, a, I want to say about 100 videos on there. Maybe not that many, but uh, it's doing really well. Okay. And then earlier this year, um, met a guy from Nashville named Bill Melder who had a person called Missing Persons, in, or had a channel called uh, Missing Persons and Mysteries. And uh, he liked the way I sounded and wanted me to come narrate for him. So I started narrating over there, and I think, and, and writing some too. Uh, that was one thing I didn't know that I had a voice for narration until I started my YouTube channel. I'd heard some horror narrators and things. I thought, I'd like to try that. And I thought, well, what would I narrate? Hello, everyone. This is Brandon, the host of the Parunity Podcast, wanting to take a second to tell you about our show. The Parunity Podcast is your top choice for closing the distance between the paranormal groups. From ghosts to cryptids to ufology, we will discuss it all. The Parunity Podcast is aimed at promoting positivity and collaboration between investigators and is geared specifically for those in the field. But if you're not, you'll still get a kick out of the show as well, because you'll be able to think of it like ghost hunters talking shop. Tune in and join myself and all of our amazing guests as we entertain you with sensational stories of fantastic places, events, tips for your investigations, and so much more. And remember, you can find the Parunity Podcast on your favorite podcast directory and part of the Paranormality Radio Network. And I thought, well, dummy, you've got two books full of stuff here you've written, or actually three, narrate that. So I started that way, narrating my own stories. Anyway, for some reason, people think I have a voice that lends to storytelling and and creepy stuff. And uh, more power to them. I don't like the way I sound, never have. I think I sound like an educated hillbilly, which is basically what I am, so I'll own it. Mm -hmm. 
but uh bill said I, I like the way you sound you'd be perfect so he hired me to narrate and ended up bringing me on as a full partner for that channel and uh earlier this week we uh hit our 50,000 subscriber mark Congratulations. So, a lot of good things happening over there thank you and uh youtube's a good outlet there's met a lot of great people on there a lot of uh talented creative people things there's some interesting channels out there and uh the missing persons and mysteries it's mainly concentrated on missing persons the 411 missing type stuff if you're familiar with david politis work but we also get into the mystery side of it too we have some earth mysteries on there like and some paranormal stuff like the glimmer man and shadow people and uh some of the strange goings on on Mount Shasta in Northern California, and it, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Like, well, what's your favorite mystery you've done on the channel? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I I enjoy some of the, the missing disappearance type stuff, the strange disappearances, particularly the Dennis Martin case out of the Great Smoky mm -hmm. Mountains. That happened in 1969, and I was close to the same age that Dennis was when he disappeared. I think he was a few months older than I was. But that was the first time as a child that I got the idea that a child could just disappear, that could just go missing. And I remember when that happened, you know, there was it was the biggest manhunt in the Smokies at, at that time. Uh, and, and maybe even since, but uh, I followed that every day as a child. I had a little scrapbook where I kept clippings, and you know, I just thought any day now they're going to find him. And I went out looking for him on my bicycle. You know, we lived out in the country, Knox County, about an hour, hour and a half from the Smokies. But in my little six-year-old mind, I was thinking, well, he's a kid; he could have wandered down here. So I actually, you know, was concerned about him. I've just, I've never forgotten that cases, and it's you know, been over 50 years now, and uh, his dad passed away. It's been about four or five years ago, I think, on Halloween, no less. And I just thought, you know, how sad that was to, to die without any closure, without ever knowing what happened to Dennis. And um, there was never any trace of him found other than one footprint, and they're not even sure that was his. It may have been uh, one from a Boy Scout troop that was helping look for him. But, uh, yeah, they were in uh, the Spencefield area of Cades Cove on Father's Day. He was there with his father and his grandfather and his brother, uh, maybe two brothers. And uh, they met another family there who, in a kind of Fortean coincidence, also happened to be named Martin. They had kids, too. And uh, the fathers agreed that the kids should play together. And uh, the boys were either playing hide-and-seek or scare the adults, depending on which story you hear. Mm -hmm. uh, uh his father said that he, he saw Dennis go behind a clump of bushes when the boys were hiding. And then a few minutes later, the other boys were all back and nobody had seen Dennis. He went, went straight to the bush where he'd seen him disappear, walked in it all the way around it, nothing. That was the last time he ever saw his son. Now, there, there's a lot more to the case that I can go into here, but if you do a search on uh, YouTube, there's a lot of different takes on it. But uh, there was even... Uh, one guy has a channel called South Force 10 that has some very, very interesting theories about uh, a family, I guess you call a family of wild men that have been rumored to live in the Smokies. And I've heard those stories from park rangers 
Yeah. Now, whether they're wild men or Bigfoot, who knows? But uh, according to this uh, South Force 10 channel, Bigfoot took Dennis Martin. So, mm-hmm. interesting theory, and it would explain a lot of things. But that, that's probably my favorite uh, strange disappearance like that, just because I've followed it since I was six years old. So, 51 years now. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be 57 on Halloween. I was born on Halloween. So, what was cool birthday to have? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get a lot of people tell me, oh, I want your birthday. There's a, a girl's candy for me. Hmm. Oh, uh, Virginia. I like, I seen, doing research for Virginia, like, I seen kind of like, you're saying UFO sightings in Virginia. Yeah, again, that's the most ones that I've read about and, and heard about were over on the, the Tidewater area near the, the ocean. And uh, over there, they have not only UFOs, but USOs, which is an identified submerged object. And sometimes they're both. I've been I've read cases where they saw some sort of UFO that actually didn't hit the water, but like went into the water and continued on underneath in the ocean but yeah they're around uh, the, the Chesapeake Bay area in Newport News a lot of UFO activity in that area um, I think the busiest time was probably back in the 70s I want to say around 73 but at that time that was like the whole country was in the middle of a UFO flap that's a lot of these are searchers when, when there's a mass of, of sightings and things like that they'll call it flap for whatever term use of a term but uh, I remember in 73 when there was a lot of activity going on but yeah I just I don't know man there's I've, I've delved into UFOs a little bit and I've seen some aerial phenomena that I couldn't explain uh, Brown Mountain Lights over in North Carolina that's really unusual if you ever get the chance to go over there and see that do it it just will blow your mind and um, I'm trying to think. I know there's a spook light in one area of Virginia. It's, it's somewhere around Norfolk. I can't remember the exact location or the, the terms of it. A lot of times, spook lights tend to, you know, there'll be along railroad tracks where a, a train's maybe crashed or something. Here, let me get real quick here. Uh, let's say March 5th, 1951, a spook light first began appearing on Jackson Road, shadowing two and a half, uh, shadowing lane two and a half miles south of Suffolk, on US 13 and a mile west, crossing Turlington Road. So that that's near Norfolk. So. All right. Hmm. Think it'd be a, a ghost train. Yeah, possibly. Um, a lot of times that'll be the, I know the the garden light in. Uh, Arkansas, that's along a railroad track. There's one not far here over in Washington State in a little town called Yacolt, which uh, is seen along a railroad track. And it's it's not always the case, but it's common, I think, to see spook lights along uh, railroad tracks. There's, uh, there's one over there in that area. Um, I think it's in Fentress County. It might be in Scott County. And I can't remember the... I think it was the O&W Railroad that used to run through there. That was the Oneida and something. I can't remember what the W stood for. But uh, there was a train that ran off a trestle 
over there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard stories, and I've seen a picture of the train prior to the crash, and I've heard stories of it, and I think that's mentioned in, in one of my books. I think that was the story where the guy uh, had heard what he thought was a train crash off in the woods, and it turned out it was the anniversary of when a train had crashed, and there was no train through there anymore. Uh, the, the rails had been taken up. But um, one thing that I read about a really interesting theory concerning the railroad spook lights is the uh, the way those railroad beds were built and the geological materials used and the different layers. And uh, there's a what's called a stone tape theory for a lot of uh, oh, yeah. residual hauntings where they think that there's something in the rock that can somehow record and then under certain meteorological conditions play it back to where you can see it or observe it and i think that kind of stands to reason because you think about it i mean you a quartz crystal you have it in your watch radios used to have quartz crystals in them in the tuner and uh you think about a magnetic tape either an audio tape or video tape all that is is mylar plastic with ferrous oxide particles adhered to it and then when that runs over the tape head that changes those particles into sound or video that can be played back so i i I like that theory that some types of rock and um it's particularly things with granite or a lot of quartz material in them and uh, a lot of stone basements things like that places where there are hauntings tend to be there tend to be certain kinds of rock and even some of the other stranger stuff, like a lot of the disappearances, if you delve into the David Plytus missing forward one stuff, a lot of that takes place in Boulder Field. And he's also found out that if you look at his map of the United States and Canada, where the clusters of disappearing people are, those also line up with where not only underground caves in the United States, but also the largest deposits of granite. So it all ties together somewhere out there. I'm just not smart enough to put it all together and figure it out. But I think a lot of the spook lights could have something to do with the actual material of uh, the, the way those railroad beds are laid out. And, and if you have still have the, the iron or steel on there, rails and the, the spikes and things like that, how somehow that can all work in concert and enhance that, if not be the cause of it. I, I like to think of it as, you know, something supernatural, but, you know, there could be a plausible, somewhat natural explanation for it. Just some strange thing that we're not aware of yet, like piezoelectricity, you know, that's that's come from a crystal. Little mm-hmm. piezo lighters that you have where you press it down and it compresses the crystal and causes a spark to jump and light the flame. So I think there's a lot of things out there that we we have some knowledge of, but not enough to realize what things are truly capable of. Yeah. Do you think uh, the stone tape theory has anything to do with the paranormal activities around old castles in Europe? Yeah, I, I believe so. And again, just because of the, the, the construction there. And it tends to be, though, residual hauntings where it's it's like a tape. It's like a loop. Um, I know there's an area at Gettysburg where there's a, a stone fence there and in that area they see uh troops uh, civil war troops marching into the woods but it's like a tape loop they're just marching and marching and marching and marching and um 
there was uh, what at one time was considered to be the oldest known haunting. The far back, there was a a basement of a I think it was a pub or a tavern in England, you know, where they saw the ghosts of Roman soldiers marching through there. Yeah. And um, after researching it, they found out that the old road that uh, went through the area during the Roman occupation times came right through there. So again, I think it was related to something in the stone in the basement there of that. The place was built like in the 1600s or something, but still, you know, the the stone was naturally cored from a nearby area. So I don't know. It's interesting. But then that, while that theory works for residual hauntings, then active hauntings, you know, that's where something interacts with you or can talk to you or, you know, knock three times for yes and two times for no. That, that to me points out some kind of intelligence or some sort of something other than just a residual haunting. So that's that's where you get into some some shaky area there, I think, in the, the haunting stuff, because while some explanations fit, some don't. There is no one-size-fits-all for that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing or reading about the old Roman shoulders, and they would be walking, and you, can always, you can't see their feet or their bottom half. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the road was like buried like about three feet underground. Yeah, that that makes sense. That, that's another thing talking about hauntings are the partial apparitions. I've heard of stories where maybe they would only see a ghost from the, the knees down or something like that. To me, that would be more frightening. Now, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen a ghost. I saw a full body apparition when I was a child and it didn't frighten me as much as it just made me curious you know what's that that's not supposed to happen but if it had been a partial apparition if it had been a say a headless <laughs> phantom or just mm-hmm. a pair of legs that would scare the daylights out of me even today you know thinking about it um mammoth cave there in kentucky there was a gentleman back in the 20s named floyd collins that was pinned in there and died before they could get him out and uh, that cave system is haunted and they think it may be the ghosts there. They have a telephone intercom system from the ghosts from the, the gift shop and ticketing area down into the cave. And they said sometimes when there's nobody down there, um, the, the intercom will go off. They'll pick it up and they'll hear voices in the cave when there's nobody there and it's hmm. shut and locked. And they've seen a pair of legs from the knees down wearing denim overalls, apparently. I don't know how they know it was overalls, if they just saw the legs, yeah. but uh, running down the, the hillside there at Mammoth Cave. But yeah, no no partial apparitions for me, thanks. Give me a whole ghost or, or nothing. Do, do you think um, ghosts are sentient? Well, based on, on things that I've seen and observed, I would have to say some of them are, particularly ones like so they can interact, um, which would include things like poltergeists that seem to be just hell-bent on, on making noise and, and causing disruption and things. And then there are also some that seem to try and truly communicate, you know, through through knocks or through EVP or what have you. So I, there, there has to be, in order for it to communicate there, I think there has to be some sort of sentience to it. Yeah. And um, I don't know, it's fascinating. That's the thing I found about paranormal research is uh, author Cisco Murdoch that uh, I co-authored a book with um, 
she likened it to uh, an onion, like the paranormal is an onion. You peel off one layer, there's another layer, and you keep going, there's another layer. And then um, Soraya Ascath, who has a, a show called Where Did the Road Go, an excellent paranormal show, among other things. Uh, he has a theory that it's like trying to put together a puzzle, but you don't have the, the box to see what the picture's even supposed to look like. And then it turns out, maybe it's five or six puzzles mixed together and none of the pieces fit. <laughs> so that's that a good that's... analogy, I think. Well, I've been thinking about, like, if ghosts are sentient, then, like, do they have, should they have rights? They're, like, you know? That's interesting. You know, there are places that have passed, uh, protection laws for cryptids i know there's some places where it's it's illegal to shoot harm molest or injure a bigfoot so uh yeah i would think that that ghost would have that that same degree of protection i mean there's places where uh i can't remember it was somewhere in um north carolina i can't remember the name of the town they had a haunted inn or bed and breakfast or something there and a, a lady came through and was going to um uh, send the ghost on through the light to the other side, you know, and and the people are like, no, no, we love our ghost. We don't want it to go anywhere. And then they got into this big fight. To, the uh, empath lady that was trying to help the ghost was saying, yeah, but this person's trapped. You know, they need to go on and into the, the afterlife and into the beyond. And the, the owners of the place were like, no, we, we love our ghost. We want him to stay here. And that, you know, it kind of gets you into an ethical area if if they are ghosts and they were people you know is it fair to to keep them around if there is a way to send them on that's i wouldn't want to make that call for anybody yeah i, I like making calls for like anybody or anything it's like yeah. i i like my that, that would be like you know unplugging somebody's life support machine or something here among the living and i, I wouldn't want to be put in that situation either it's really interesting thought about it that's that's kind of stuff that runs through my head at three four o'clock in the morning i'm a classic insomniac always have been since childhood uh i'll nap a few hours during the day and then i'm usually up all night i found that my most creative times are between around midnight and four or five a.m and that's the kind of thoughts that i get in the middle of the night you know about ghosts and you know whether you should send one on if you can and uh cisco talked about that she knows people mm -hmm. that can send people uh, along on their afterlife journey and she was talking about that you know and she likened it to if you saw somebody trapped in a hole outside would you you know gather people around and say hey come and look there's a guy in the hole look at this look at the guy in the hole you know wave if you can hear us or what's it like being in the hole you know She's like, you wouldn't do all that. You would do what you could to get them out and send them on their way. And that, that kind of makes sense. Cisco's mm -hmm. um, a wonderful lady. Her book, let me mention it, it's, uh, it's a mouthful. We are all children in the afterlife of the spirit, or in the spirit world of the afterlife, a haunted tour through a guided life. No, I got it to her through all that life. I screw that up every time, and I'm, I'm the co-author. Anyway, she's got an excellent book. She would make a good guest for you to have on some time if you want to talk ghosts and things. She's very knowledgeable. Uh, the book that we did together, her chapter on Gettysburg, is 
worth the cost of the book. Uh, if you have any interest in civil war guys. That's another thing we've talked about is what was it about the Civil War that tends to produce more hauntings? Um, um, I mean, there are Revolutionary War ghosts. Uh, I've been overseas. I visited some of the World War One and World War Two battlefields in uh, France and Germany and places like that. Um, a few years ago when I went to Southeast Asia, I went to Vietnam and visited some of those battlefields. But there's just something different about a Civil War battlefield to me. There's there's a different energy there, a different mm, darkness, kind of a, a melancholy that hangs over it. And I think it's probably because it was it was literally was brother against brother. I mean, I had people on both sides in the Civil War. Um, but it was the first time that Americans were fighting each other on American soil. And I think that had something to do with it, too. Um, from my understanding, it was um, because the Civil War was so fatal that uh, yeah. they had um, had trouble, like so many um, deaths in the in the battles that they had trouble sending the bodies back home, and they weren't able to be put to rest properly. Yeah, was, yeah, there was uh, there in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, there in the Battle of Fort Sanders. There was a place there, and I don't remember which army was which, but one army had dug a ditch and were on the other side of it, holding their position there on Fort Sanders Hill. And the other side came through, and literally they were were being shot, falling in this ditch, and they said that the ditch filled up to the point where the invading side could walk across the bodies. So the ditch didn't exist. And then... They didn't move them or anything. They just covered all that in, you know, just buried them where they fell. And that happened a lot of places. Uh, go into to Georgia, into um, Fort Oglethorpe there, the Chickamauga battlefield. That's one of the creepiest places I've ever been. I've never been to Gettysburg, but if it's anything like Chickamauga, it's just one of those places you can, I mean, there's a palpable change when you cross into that area. And they've, they've seen all kinds of things down there with the, the tower there on Snodgrass Hill, there's some sort of monster that they've seen in there that they gar the park rangers somewhat affectionately refer to as old green eyes. And uh, but yeah, I just if if you look if you want ghosts and and strange things like that, Civil War battlefields are the place to go. Have you heard about the bunny man in Virginia? Yeah, now I have heard about that. Now that's that's one of those I I don't think it was actually cryptid necessarily. It was more like somebody uh, in a bunny suit out yeah. doing uh, evil things. But then it could be a cryptid. It could be some sort of you know strange oh, creature that's taken on that kind of like the phantom clowns when those came around. That you know there was conjecture about that was it really people in clown costumes or was it something like the, the men in black or the black eyed kids or the mothman or something like that you know but just in a clown form it's like uh, some of the uh, paranormal writers talk about the, the, the joker concept that goes on with a lot of these particular the, the 14 events where you know like it's like something out there, like with the the the, the um, 
the men in black. You know, it was, mm-hmm. well, these are, you know, they wear suits and they drive nice cars. Surely people will talk to them. Everybody was scared to death of them. Then later on, you had the, the black eyed kids. Well, you know, well, they're kids. We'll send kids out there. Everybody loves kids, but, you know, these are weird kids with black eyes that try to get in your house. Uh, same with the clowns. Oh, we'll send clowns. You know, everybody loves clowns, but these were creepy clowns that stepped out of the mm-hmm. woods. You know? So it's like there's something out there trying to do things to, I don't know, infiltrate society or, or cause some sort of disturbance there, but they don't mm-hmm. quite get it right. It makes you wonder, are there things that have been sent that you never hear about because it's successful? Uh, I jokingly said one time, if they ever send, uh, black-eyed uh, bikini models with heavy mm. metal albums and pizza to my house, I'll let them in. <laughs> <laughs> so so who knows? Although lately I've been hearing some uh, reports of black-eyed uh, grown-ups. So wow. um, makes me wonder. You know, the, the first black-eyed kids sightings were, I think, back in the early 90s or so. So if they were kids at that time, they would be in their 30s now. So are the black-eyed adults that people are now reporting are those the black-eyed kids from 20, 30 years ago? Hmm. Interesting. And then you've got some of these new uh, cryptid creatures. I don't know if you've heard of Flannel Man. Um, Timothy Renner over on uh, Strange Familiars podcast, he talks a lot about Flannel Man. They have a lot of uh, sightings reported over there. And it's just what it sounds like. It's a a guy that looks like a lumberjack wearing a a certain type of plaid flannel and spotted lots of different places and I actually had a flannel man story that I'd recorded in uh, my it's in my first book that I didn't even know it was flannel man I didn't know there was such a thing but there was a guy that had been lost in uh, a national park or national forest and didn't have any food or water or anything with him and was had been out for two or three days like that and he came across a guy flailing away at a, a tree with an axe wearing a, some kind of woodsy pants and a, a flannel shirt and uh, the guy pointed the way for him to, to go to get out and um, he was as close to the road the whole time but didn't know it he'd been wandering in circles but he went the way the, the guy in the flannel told him to go and uh, sure enough he climbed up a, a steep embankment there was a road there and he just kind of collapsed to the edge of the road and short time later a uh, ranger park service vehicle goes by and stops and you know sees the guys obviously in need he hadn't told anybody he was going people didn't even know he was missing but uh the, the guy told the ranger he said yeah it's, i probably would have died if it hadn't been for the, the guy down there cutting trees and the, the park ranger's like cutting trees and the guy was like yeah just just over the the bank there down in the woods there's a guy cutting trees down there and so the, the ranger went down there and looked. There was no evidence of any guy in a flannel. There was no trees that had been cut, no axe marks or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, was that, that to me, that sounds like what I now know as a flannel man sighting. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, is that uh, like in one area or is it in some different? It's... I've heard of it in different areas. That one was in Ohio. There's been reports in Pennsylvania... And I'm trying to think of where else it, there, there's been several. Anyway, it's just one of those things. And I think like my story, people didn't really know that that was a thing. It was just, you know, something weird in the woods. And then 
when you get somebody like Strange Vermeers that's aggregating these stories, then it starts putting it together into a bigger puzzle. Like, you know, okay, well, it's been spotted here and here and here and here. And uh, there's an awareness of it now, and then more people are coming forward with stories. That's like um, the shadow people stories. Those are, are quite commonplace. And that's another, we delve into that on the Missing Person Ministries channel. And uh, we found since airing those stories, we've had a lot of subscribers and listeners write in with their stories of shadow people. And then recently it's been uh, what they're calling Glimmer Man, which is like a translucent humanoid. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Predator, how you can kind of see the outline of it, mm-hmm. but you can see through it. And uh, there's been a lot of those type sightings. They're coming more to the fore. And I actually had an experience with whatever it was, not in the woods, where uh, a lot of your stories come from the woods, hunters and, and people like that. I had it happen in downtown Portland, Oregon, one night on a street corner. There was something, in, human in shape, but it was shimmering. I could see through it, but it was moving. And it actually crouched down between a... a side post and uh, a garbage can and I got out of there it was said it just you know something didn't feel right and uh, it's similar to the other stories that I've heard but mine's the first one I've ever heard of actually out in a city like that but Portland's a weird place anyway there's, there's a lot of a lot of history here a lot of strange things here a lot of hauntings and of course you got Bigfoot just outside the city. Mm-hmm. Привет, comrade. I must make apology. It has taken much time to call and leave a message. I spend many hours running from KGB and drinking vodka. My friend, you have wonderful podcast. I find much pleasure in hearing you speak of monsters. For me, it is highlight of week. I must tell you of second excellent podcast. It is Laughs in Rack podcast. This podcast is very funny and discusses great number of topics. I live in Siberia. This is not place where comedy is made. This Laughs and Wreck podcast is my source for comedy. I find bloated American proletariat host miles long most amusing. This podcast is located on many platforms. I find on Spotify in Apple Podcasts. It has grown late and I plan to walk many miles for a new bottle of vodka and to wrestle with bear. Those pretty much the, the whole mm-hmm. uh, Pacific Northwest from Northern California all the way up through Oregon and into Washington. There's, that's that's Bigfoot country, weird stuff country. And mentioned before, uh, Mount Shasta, there in Northern California, all kinds of uh, UFOs there, Bigfoot, uh, people in uh, white robes seen wandering around in the woods, uh, cave with uh, robot people in it. There's, there's all kinds of weird stuff on the mountains, Asta. Caves is for robot people? What's that? Uh, caves, caves is for robot people? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, oh. There was another um, crazy. really interesting missing persons case where a little boy had gone missing and uh, he, he showed up a few days later and he was talking to his grandmother and he said, I, I like you better than the other grandmother and She's like, what do you mean, other grandmother? He said, the robot grandmother. 
And she's like, what? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, when I was missing, you came and got me, but it wasn't you. It was, but it looked like you, but it was a robot. And she took me into a cave and um, tried to get him to defecate on a piece of paper. And he observed, so this is like a three, four-year-old kid, you know, just, mm. it was too much detail for him just to made it up out of his head. And uh, that was, you know, was, what on earth was that that this kid saw that a robot that looked like his grandmother that's trying to get biological samples from him? There's just there's some the more you delve into it the stranger it gets and that's that's what I enjoy that's why I'd, I don't call myself a paranormal expert I don't even really consider myself an investigator I'm more of a researcher I like to go out and visit these areas a lot of times places it won't be where you've had a lot of encounters but just a single encounter and that's where these these legends come from it happened once and that's true with a lot of the stories in uh, my first book there, Strange Things in the Woods, a lot of those were things that just happened one time. Mm -hmm. Or the person that told me the story only experienced it one time. I'm not saying that other people didn't or couldn't experience it, but to me, that's where the, the joy is, just hearing the stories and then passing those on. The majority of those people that I collected those stories from have passed on. So mm -hmm. but, uh, their stories and their memory lives on through, through my writing. That was kind of what... Uh, my grandmother was on my mother's side. She was a self-proclaimed gypsy witch. She's very superstitious. Uh, she told fortunes. Um, she read coffee grounds and tea leaves and uh, animal entrails <laughs> and things like that. Uh, she could read your palms or uh, she practiced phrenology, which is tell your, your fortune or your future by feeling the bumps on your head. Just, you know, a lot of stuff that was very popular around the turn of the first century. They were involved with the spiritualism movement held seances and table tappings and used Ouija boards and stuff. So I was born into a lot of this wild stuff. But um, she would tell me stories and legends and said it had a superstition for everything and things to do for good luck and things to do to ward off bad luck and how to recognize omens and signs and warnings and, and things like that. And uh, I remember at her funeral, I was 13 years old, just standing there looking at her coffin at her and it was the most still she'd ever been. She was one of these, even elderly people, she was busy all the time. She was always doing something. And that was the most still I'd ever seen. And I thought, you know, those, all those stories, all those legends, all those things used to scare the daylights out of me when I was little, it's all right there with her. And I thought, you know, I'm going to write those stories down and, and mm. get them out there. So that that's really what prompted me. Even though I'd been collecting mm. stories, for a long time, that was the idea to really write them down instead of just collect them in, in my head to amuse myself. And then my uh, other book was um, Strange Things in the Woods was first in two volumes. It was Strange Things in the Woods, more Strange Things in the Woods. Then this past April, when I signed with a, a new publisher, they combined both those into one. So Strange Things in the Woods is actually volumes one and two. Then my third book was My Strange World. And that's my personal experiences, my personal encounters, uh, things that have scared me, uh, the ghost that I saw when I was a kid, some of those things, that, that's all in there. And the way that came about, after I wrote the first book, I started going on shows like yours, and inevitably the host, or if it was a radio show, the callers would ask, well, you know, these are other people's stories, have you ever had any experiences? And I would tell one or the other, and 
just came to an idea one day, you know, I should write these down and see if I've got enough for a book. And I did, and that was a lot of fun too. But everything in the, I sent you a copy of that one last night. Those are all things that happened to me. And that's that's not everything. That's just the ones I've written down so mm. far. What got you st- like who what was the yeah <laughs> um how'd you get started in the paranormal uh it was that that first sighting i was i was six years old um house that we lived in at the time in uh, extreme west knox county uh we were our driveway was 212 feet long and i know that because i measured it later on when i was doing a bmx sprint racing and things like that but uh, there's an inverted T intersection there in front of the house. It was out of the country. It's country roads. Lived on 26 acres out in the middle of. It wasn't really suburban even at that time. It was just rural, uh, West Knox County. And uh, kid that lived next door. He was a year younger than me. And by next door, it was about a half a mile away to the, the nearest neighbor. And uh, I was out in the yard playing, and I was waiting for him to come home. I was six. So he would have been five. And I was about halfway in the yard, so I was about 100 feet from the road. And we just, the area where the house was, the front yard, that was all pretty much cleared off. And the rest of the acreage was just in woods and things. And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting, watching for his mom's car because I knew he'd be home then. Well, I see a car coming down the hill. And I think, is that him? So I just started casually walking toward the road. Well, the car stops at the inverted T intersection there. And it's, it's not his mom's car. I don't know who it was. But while it stopped at the stop sign, I can see the driver in there. He's looking left and right. Well, out from behind the kid or behind the car on the passenger side, a little kid runs out out of nowhere. Like he came from the trunk or something, even though the trunk wasn't open. But he came from the back of the car and ran around in front of it across the road, you know. And, and I remember because it was just a little kid, like a toddler, like maybe two years old. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, that kid's going to get hit because that guy can't see, you know, this little kid that rode over the hood of the car. But the little kid ran kind of catty-cornered in front of the car, across the road, and the guy in the car is not paying any attention. He looked both ways and just carried on. Well, the kid continues running, and if you've noticed sometimes little kids who've just barely mastered walking, they'll start running and then just sort of lose control and fall. Well, that's what mm-hmm. happened. The kid said he came out from behind the car. He ran across the road at an angle, down into our yard, maybe 10 or 15 feet, tripped, fell, and absolutely disappeared. I watched it happen. I did not take my eyes off the spot. Like I said I was probably at that time less than 100 feet away from because I'd already started walking toward the road when I thought the car I was watching for. So maybe 75 feet away, I see him disappear straight to the spot, didn't blink, didn't take my eyes off the spot. There's nothing there. There's no kid, nothing I could have mistaken for a kid, no hole that a kid could have fallen in. Uh, at a later time, I even went got a shovel and dug to see if I found anything, and I didn't. But to this day, I have no idea what that was or, or what it meant. Or um, I researched all I could. There never been any kid that I ran over on that road that I could ever find out about or... Uh, just little boy, blonde hair. He was wearing uh, blue shorts with uh, little sus- matching suspenders and matching blue cap. And had on a white shirt, white shoes. But it said it didn't scare me. It was just like, you know, what, what was that? 
you know, that, that's not supposed to happen even at six. And I know little kids don't it's disappear from behind cars, run across the road and fall down, disappear. And that was kind of what set me on the path was, you know, what is that? What was that? It kind of opened my eyes to that part of the, the unseen world, you know, that there are things out there that you can't explain. And years later, I asked my grandmother about that. Like I said, she was big on signs and warnings and ports and things like that. And she said, that's just the supernatural's way of telling you that sometimes you'll see things that other people don't. You'll see things that are maybe meant for you to witness and interpret. Sometimes you'll see things that are meant for other people hmm. and that, that weren't meant for you at all, but you just happen to see it because you have an awareness of those things. Now, now this is according to her. Said so she's from uh, deep in Appalachia. They're very superstitious hmm. in the folklore and all that. Uh, when I was born, I had a call over my face, and that's all that is is the part of the amniotic sac that I was in as a baby. It didn't didn't come off completely. It was the covering that you're in when you before you're born, and uh, the afterbirth they call it. Well, when I was born, part of that was still over my face. Well, in Appalachia, that's a good thing. That means you are a special special person. And you've got all kinds of gifts and talents and abilities. Now, that's according to my grandmother. And uh, because I was born with that over my face, I became instantly her favorite grandchild and the one that she shared all this with. I had a multitude of cousins. My mom and uh, she had nine brothers. There were ten kids all together. So I had a slew of cousins that I couldn't even name. You know, There were so many of them. But out of all those grandchildren, I was the favorite because I was the one born with the afterbirth on my head. And um, in her eyes, that marked me as special and having second sight and being able to you know, do a lot of the things that, that she did as far as fortune telling and stuff like that. And I've never delved into all that. I did read tarot cards for a time back in the 90s, but uh, basically I found out that that was just something that was more intuitive for me that I could do it without the cards. The cards were just a concrete representation of an abstract concept that made it easier to tell people things. Yeah. Because if you just come in and sit down and somebody tells you, yeah, this, 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 and this, you go, yeah, right. But if you come in, you sit down and I lay out a, a spread and then say, this means this and this means that. And it, you know, it makes more sense that way if you're open to that sort of thing. But, uh, it just, it wasn't for me. I, you know, you hear the same questions over and over. It's always about love or money or health or relationships, things like that, you know. And just, Usually people already have an answer and they've already made it up in their head. So they either want you to say what they already know so they feel better about what they think. Or if you come up with something that disagrees what they've already convinced themselves of, then you don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah. I just, I kind of take all that with a grain of salt. I'll, I'll give advice to people uh, with what uh, empathic and intuitive abilities I have, but I don't, I don't tell fortunes or anything like, like Granny did. Although I, I probably could. I understand how all that works. She showed me, didn't really give me lessons per se, but she showed me how to do those things and read tea leaves and coffee grounds. And so. Yeah, just basically a life in the paranormal on that side. Now, my dad's side, people, his side of the family, they were from, from your area over there in Fentress County. And what's now Jamestown back then, it was Ben Stockton, Tennessee. 
I left to all my relatives and later it was incorporated into Jamestown. My grandmother, Fanny Stockton, was the postmaster over there at Ben Stockton, Tennessee. She not only ran the post office, but she cut hair and pulled teeth. She was a kind, of a, kind of a different type of a witch, although she would have taken offense at that term. She was an herb doctor, which kind of the same thing. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, you over there, you know, back in the, the hills and things, you did what you could. And, yeah, people would come to get the mail, pick up their mail. And if they want a haircut, she'd give them a haircut. If they needed a tooth pulled, she'd pull a tooth. You know, and she she knew uh, a lot of folk remedies and uh, how to make uh, teas and compresses and things out of roots and, and herbs. And she was uh, half Cherokee. So she was well-versed in all that. I didn't, didn't get to know her very well at all. Uh, she died when I was not quite six years old. Mm-hmm. So, wow. yeah, that's, that's that's kind of my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, an interesting part of the, the world over there. I love that area. And so the family farm's still over there on uh, Stockton Chapel Road. Oh, I think I've been over there. It's really beautiful. Absolute middle of nowhere. <laughs> But it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's woods. There's a lot of people like to hunt over there. Uh, my cousin that, that owns the, the farm, he leases part of it out for to deer hunters, and it's good for that sort of thing. I, I'm not a hunter. Never have been. Just never had the taste for it. I I do my hunting with a camera. It's a good way to hunt. No, no offense to any hunters out there. If that's what you're into, then more power to you. It's just it's not for me. I never had the heart for it. Never had the patience for fishing either, but there's some good fishing over there too, from what I hear. Are you big on horror movies? Yeah, I, I tend to like the the older stuff, like from the '80s on back. I, mm-hmm. I love, love all the the '80s franchises, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth and Sleepaway Camp. But I like the a lot of the darker stuff prior to that. The, some, especially some of the Hammer films from the '60s, you know, the classic classic Dracula films. With, uh, yeah. And uh, the original uh, Wicker Man, and going on back, and then of course uh, the older Bela Lugosi films, and the uh, Universal Monsters, all those. Yeah, I just uh, any more like the ones that have all the, the special effects and computer generated stuff. That kind of kills it for me. I like the older stuff where it was all practical effects and. Basically, you know, when I worked in independent film, helping helping do those kind of effects, because we did some some kind of bloody things where you didn't really see what was going on, but off screen, you know, it was happening, but you'd see blood splatter on the wall or something. And I got it. I got a charge out of helping do some of those special effects. Um, do you like the, the ever seen the Changeling from 1980? What's the name of it? The Changeling. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that one. Me too. Yeah, there's any any of those movies from the 80s. I think there's just there was something about just the, the quality and the, the cinematography and same with the Hammer films in the 70s. Just, you you couldn't make movies that looked like that today. I don't think and just they had it down. But yeah, I love, love the Changeling. Um, else from that era probably uh the exorcists exorcist yeah now i didn't see that until i was an adult but that that's a good film um the fog 
John Carpenter, yeah. any any John Carpenter's films are the thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Thing. And I, I, I think they did a remake of that, but I, I haven't seen it. I'm. It's not that good. I'm I've not much it. on remakes. I'm like, just leave the original alone. You know, do something else. Do something original. <laughs> what was that? Phantasm. I love that whole franchise, especially the first one. Though that was just, I saw that in the theater when it came out, and it was just such a mind-blowing thing. You know, you didn't expect any of that, and it's like, wow, what's this? And then, uh, of course, the first Halloween movie. That yeah. one kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. I was in high school, I think, when that came out, and yeah, you know, I was not anxious to go down into a dark basement or anything for a while after watching that one. But I think, and I've had that question, what scares you? I've had two, maybe three instances where I've actually been scared of things. But people, humans, scare me more than any cryptid or anything paranormal that I've ever encountered, save for those three things. Um, there, Two of the stories are on my channel, and then another one I've got on somebody else's channel. First one is on my channel. It's called, uh, it's on 13 Past Midnight. It's called The Thing in the Ditch. That's about something that I ran into there on the property when I grew up, when I was eight years old, and then again when I was 15. Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail here because it's kind of a long story, but it was something that I couldn't see, and that made it even more frightening. I could see the effects that it had on the surroundings. It was running in the leaves. I could see the leaves being kicked up. Uh, I could see branches and things being pushed out of the way up a lot higher than my head, but I couldn't see what it was, but it was headed straight toward me. Whoa. And uh, that happened twice. And then at a party in the 80s, there were some people playing with a Ouija board. And when they, they came around to me, my question was what scared me when I was a kid. And I got an interesting answer from the board, even though I didn't know anybody there. I only knew the person that I was at the party with and just knew them a little bit from work. Um, another time I was at a friend's house and something uh looking back now i think it's probably a wendigo or skinwalker something mm -hmm. like that uh it didn't chase us but it was standing in a partially fallen down old shed looking at us and uh his dad was full cherokee and we came back we described what we'd seen it looked basically like the skull of a horse but it had eyes and they were on the front of the head instead of on the sides like a horse but it, I think it had some kind of antlers or something going on with it. So it was mixed up looking, whatever it was. It wasn't a deer skull, it was a horse skull. And it had sharp teeth, and it was staring at us and kind of made a, a huffing noise or something. It scared the life out of us. And this kid, they lived way out in the woods. Their driveway was almost a mile long. And we were about halfway down the driveway in an old shale pit. So we ran back to the house absolutely panicked and told what we'd seen and his dad finally had had enough and he went down, back down the driveway with a shotgun to see what it was and we kept waiting and listening you know we were sure we'd hear the shotgun blast you know that he'd shoot something or yell or scream or something when he comes back in a few minutes more like an hour probably and he just had a really weird strange look on his face had a shotgun over his shoulder and he's like I don't want you boys going down there anymore and he made us promise that, you know we're like no problem there we're, we couldn't pay us to go back 
but he made us like solemnly swear that we wouldn't go down there anymore. And then at school, a few weeks later, my friend told me that uh, his dad, the one that made us swear not to go back down there, had pulled that old shed down. It was sitting up on a hill above this shell pit, had pulled the shack down into the pit and burned it. So he saw something when he went back down there, but he wouldn't talk about it. And that's kind of a, it's a First Nations, Native American thing in general, but Cherokee in particular, there are some things they just, especially the elders, they will not talk about because yeah. it's like a tulpa. You talk about it, even thinking about it, it, you can draw it to you. Whatever it was, he didn't like it, forbid us to go down there. He wouldn't, he never talked about it. But he pulled the shack down and burned it. And whatever that was, it was some sort of, I think now, in retrospect, it was some sort of Native American thing that meant something to him. Hmm. And then the third, <clears throat> excuse me, the third thing that scared me, back in the 90s, I had an encounter with the black-eyed children. Um, I think I think we've got that on Missing Persons and Mysteries. I've, there's a recorded version of me telling it. I don't think it's on my channel. It's on another channel I know the producer videos for called uh, Unicorps Tales. A uh, friend of mine from Manchester, UK named Tanya, she had interviewed me for her channel and had me tell that story. So Unicorps Tales, uh, Steve Stockton's encounter with the black eyed kids. If you search it like that, it's on YouTube. And that one scared me. And that one was probably the scariest of all of them because it was just such an irrational fear. It was, uh, I was doing some computer work for a, a company like at night while they were closed and um i'd come out about two o'clock in the morning to leave i was done and this was in an industrial area it was a, a medical facility well there's these two little girls out the edge of the parking lot sitting on the curb in the semi-darkness there one probably 12 the other looked like she was maybe 10 or so and again it's it's a long story but they kept moving toward me and I never saw them move they would I would always be doing something when I looked up they were closer and uh, the what I assumed to be the older one the taller one was talking non-stop and it was he, he'll let us in his car he'll take us he won't leave us out here he won't leave us stranded he'll have to let us go it's cold it's dark we're all alone he'll let us in his car he'll have to take us just over and over and over and over and over and at the time I was driving a little Mazda Miata and it's a two-seater at best. Mm -hmm. And there was no way I would have put two kids in a car at two o'clock in the morning in an open convertible. But it was just almost like a fight or flight thing because I just was catching wave after wave of evil off these two mm -hmm. little girls. And I know that sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous even to me. And, and I was there. But... um I was very frightened that time. I, I fumbled getting in the car and getting it started. I couldn't get the door open, so I jumped over the door. Uh, I had trouble getting it started. Finally roared to life. Instead of just exiting normally, I drove down through the grass of the the building complex there and jumped the curb and took off that way. Mm -hmm. uh, was supposed to go to my girlfriend's house because she lived close to there, just within a couple of miles. And I worked my day job at an area close by. I turned and went the other way and drove all the way to my parents' house in Oak Ridge, got to their house, went around and parked behind the house under a tree and uh, looked out the windows for the rest of the night until the, the sun came up. But that whole drive, there's a, a road there in uh, West Knoxville called Pilsippi Parkway, goes from Oak Ridge 
up to uh, I-40. One way will take you into to Knoxville, the other way takes you to the airport in Alcoa. And it's it's a big four-lane highway with turnouts. But I was tearing down through there 1,900 miles an hour. And I kept like looking in my rear mirror and looking physically over my shoulder. In my mind, I, it was like I could see these little girls like they were running along behind the car or were holding on to the spoiler in the back. Just these outrageous thoughts I was getting in my head. And again, it was that fight or flight thing. Yeah. Never saw them again. Don't know what that was other than, you know, their eyes were black. And they wanted into my car and I wouldn't let them in. So, but that, that was probably the most frightened I've ever been in just because it was such an irrational, unexplainable fear. I mean, I've had, I've been in some hairy situations before and, you know, didn't think much of it, but that, that really, really scared me. Do you think they somehow like gave you that fear? Like they implanted that fear into you? I, I think so. And, and one of the explanations I've heard that, that what you see when you encounter things like that is not what it really is. That's just kind of like a form it takes. Yeah. Like you've heard Whitley Strieber talk about his abduction experience. He saw owls. And then later under hypnosis, according to Whitley Strieber, it wasn't owls at all, but it was gray aliens. Mm-hmm. But whatever this was that was either representing itself as two little girls or controlling these two little girls or however you want to put it, it was totally malevolent. It was totally evil and just, I, I don't even know how to explain it. If you've ever felt anything, you know, that just, it literally made hair on my arms, back of my neck, stand up and just, you know, shake, sweats, got to get out of here, fight or flight. And there was no way I was going to fight anything like that, so... But yeah, that that's the most frightened I've ever been. So those three oh. specific examples, but the black-eyed yeah. kids, girls, absolutely, that, that tops the list so far. And I've had people ask, would you like to encounter them again? And nope. yes and no, there's no, a part of me really. that would, but then the part of me that still afraid, you know, so it's, I'd, I'd like to think I'd behave differently now, but I, then again, I probably wouldn't. I probably would have to have them pond in a glass, like a pond a cage or something. <laughs> Maybe now with all the social distancing going on, if they were behind plexiglass or something. <laughs> yeah. So on your travels, what are some um, interesting things you travel all the world? Yeah, um, kind of a vagabond and. I guess it's that gypsy blood that I supposedly have on my grandmother's side, but I love to travel. Um, Between uh, high school and college, I took a year off and backpacked through Europe, mainly England, but I explored some other places too. Now, this was 1981, 1982. I, I wouldn't do it these days, and I don't recommend that anybody do it, but I took a year off, took a gap year there, and uh, went all over the UK, uh, parts of Europe, um, particularly uh, France and Spain, and then geology wasn't my, or geography rather, wasn't my strong suit in school. But when I was in Spain, I discovered that just across the uh, Strait of Gibraltar was the African continent. So I took a a ferry across the Strait of Gibraltar and spent two weeks in Morocco. So actually, Mm -hmm. uh, that little bit, I've been in Africa. And then... um, in uh, 2003, both my parents passed away. They were elderly, That's and I've been taking care of them all. I appreciate that. Um, my dad died first, dropped dead of a heart attack 
two days before his 82nd birthday. And my mom died 32 days later. Um, she was a three-time cancer survivor. And uh, it had come back, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, very fast, metastasizing, metastasizing type, a very aggressive form of cancer in the time that my dad died. And then she passed away 32 days later. And uh, I just... You know, that was kind of devastating, just a one-two punch there. And I thought, you know, I need to mm-hmm. get away. And uh, I had a friend that I'd gone to college with that had uh, expatriated to the, the Philippines. His uh, The first time he graduated college, his wealthy grandmother had given him a trip around the world. He got as far as the Philippines, cashed in the rest of his ticket, and he stayed there. He's been back to visit, but that's where he lives. He's lived there for over 25 years now. He had always begged for me to come and visit him and I thought you know this I'm going to do that so uh, I went to the, the Philippines and ended up was one of those neat things that once you're in Southeast Asia everything's close so uh, I could hub out of Manila I, I ended up spending a year over there um, I went to Vietnam I went to Thailand I went to Taiwan uh, Japan um, Cambodia it's just it was it was cheap, you know. Once you're there, mm-hmm. and even a flight from the U.S. wasn't that bad. I think even now it's about say around it's probably less than a thousand dollars round trip. But once you're there, like from Manila, I I could fly. You now this is again been about 15, 16 years ago. I could fly from Manila to Vietnam for like less than thirty dollars. So, you know, I was like, wow, this is great. So, you know, Hong Kong and I uh, did, did get to see mainland China. That was, uh, I want to go back someday and, and do that. But uh, it's just, it was so much fun just being in that part of the world. And uh, a lot of the legends and things over there, uh, in particular, uh, Thailand and um, the Philippines, they have a lot of legends, a lot of ghost stories. A lot of stuff that parallels things that we have here, but different. Like uh, they have the Aswang in the Philippines, which is their version of a vampire. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't have fangs, but it has a, a pointed tongue that it drinks blood with. And uh, it separates at the waist and uh, the, leaves the lower half behind. And the upper half flies around at night and attacks people. Mm-hmm. And the way to kill it. You find the bottom half, wherever it's left, its lower torso, and you pour salt in it. And when the upper half comes, it can't rejoin to the lower half because of the salt, and it dies. And mm-hmm. they have multos, which is, is ghost. Uh, ghost stories are popular in Thailand. Uh, a lot of people where they've had these uh, hurricanes and tsunamis and lost an extraordinary amount of life all of a sudden like that. A lot of ghost stories and uh after that, one of those most recent tsunamis in uh, Taiwan, there were people that claimed they were seeing ghosts on the beach right after it happened. So it's just, it's just part of their culture and and things are different. But it was it was an eye opener. There was one place I went to there in the Philippines called uh, Sikior, which is uh, also known as Island of the Witches, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a small island uh, kind of off the coast of uh, Cebu, and um, supposedly there's all kinds of witchcraft and weird cryptids there there's some kind of thing like a kangaroo with fangs and claws that they've seen hopping around after dark um there's a 
chapel there that has uh, some sort of statue. It's kind of looks like the the nun from one of those recent horror movies, like the the, the creepy, scary looking nun, like with a black face. And they call her Black Maria, and it's it's a statue or a figure, but supposedly a night walker. Supposedly it, it comes out of the the chapel or whatever it's in there and walks around at night and terrorizes the island. So, hmm. and. Um, I saw one of the strangest things I've ever seen there. It was the guy was either a really good uh, sleight of hand magician or he had true magical skills. But he was in a little Nipah hut there, which is you know, built out of uh, fiber, bamboo, and thing. Mm-hmm. And he had these two human-sized figures that were cut out of newspaper. One looked male, one looked female, and he he picked them up, showed them around. And then he took them and, and laid them on the floor inside this little hut. Now, you couldn't go in the hut, but you could see all through it. I mean, it's just, looks like one of those little huts off Gilligan's Island, you know? Well, yeah. he's, he's got a stick. It was uh, looked like a piece of a willow branch, what they call a willow wand. And he's standing there, and he starts kind of rhythmically waving this little stick around, almost like a conductor with a baton, you know, conducting an orchestra. And before you know it, and this this is so weird. It sounds made up, but it, it totally wasn't. <coughs> Excuse me. These paper figures start to shimmer and wiggle just a little bit on the ground. And you think, well, okay, maybe it's a breeze or something. It is the tropics. Well, before long, they're moving a lot. They're undulating. And then eventually they start rising up a little bit, maybe a few inches, and then a few inches more up and down, up and down. And then probably within 12, 15 minutes or so, they're standing fully up, paper figures, may cut out a newspaper. They're standing up and they're sort of like they're dancing. And there's this little mm-hmm. old grizzled man there, look like he's probably in his 80s, waving this little stick around. And then he continues on this little display. And, you know, in the meantime, you're supposed to tip him, you throw coins and things on the ground. And then eventually they start to kind of shimmering and shaking and they settle back down and then they rest on the, the, the had a dirt floor and you know the show's over thanks folks <laughs> you know and there was nobody that I could see uh, you could because you could see up at the top of it there was no place for anybody to hide I didn't see any string or fishing line or anything that could account for it so I don't know uh, people there of course they're very superstitious. They claim that it's black magic, that he's controlling demonic spirits to make these paper, newspaper figures dance. I saw it. I witnessed it. Don't know how he did it. Like I said, he's either a very clever sleight of hand type magician or he is another type of magician with true magic powers. But it was amazing nonetheless. That, that was one of the strangest things I've ever witnessed. Man, that's so cool. <laughs> but it was just things like that especially when you're out in the jungle over there, because there are large cities. Um, I lived in Cebu City for the year that I was there. It's uh, roughly the size of Atlanta. I mean, there's shopping malls and theaters, and but you get just a little bit outside of that, just out in the island of Cebu. It's jungle. It's rainforest and mahogany forests and things like that. Um, went over to another little island called Bohol, which is hundreds of extinct volcanoes. It looks like something out of Super Mario. There's all these little, they call it chocolate hills. It 
all these little pointed looking hills. Some of them you can climb, some of them are real small. But it's just, if you take a look online for uh, Chocolate Hills, Bohol, B-O-H-O-L, see what I'm talking about. It's just, it might as well be another planet. And I just, I had a great time over there, collected a lot of ghost stories and things. That's a future book that's coming up, the stuff that I encountered in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. It looks exactly like Mario Little Hills. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looked like. Um, old Nintendo guy from way back had the original NES when it first came out back in the 80s, but that's what it looks like. I was like, expecting uh, a mushroom people or something, the uh, turtles. Just like uh, Super Mario Brothers on NES? Yeah. What was your favorite level? Oh, it got to be the, the, the final level. I'm, it, it took me years and years and years to finally defeat the, the game, but I did it. I like some of the, the earlier levels, though. The uh, Probably like on the, either the second or third parts, that was when people were first discovering that there was hidden things. Yeah. Because when the game first came out, it didn't mention any of those. And found out, you know, oh, there's hidden blocks, and you can jump up here and go this way, or you can go down this pipe and go through a warp zone, you know, and it was just... And then uh, got like a game shark or something for it, and then that lets you do things that you weren't supposed to do anyway. You could go into areas that were otherwise not seen in the game. Yeah, over the flagpole <laughs> and some of those crazy things. But yeah, I, my my first video game system was Pong uh, back in the seventies. Got it at Sears, and then uh, later on I had an Atari twenty six hundred, and I think I've had one of everything. Up through the, the first PlayStation, I kind of got out of console gaming uh, after that. Um, I did have a Sega Dreamcast, which one of the greatest underrated systems ever, in my opinion. Yeah. But uh, I'm thinking about getting back into it now. I love some of the things that they're coming out with on the, the Xbox One and the PS4. So may have to venture back into it in my spare time, <laughs> which is very limited right now. I, I'm basically I work from home full time. I, I read and I write and I narrate and I do voiceover and radio work. I read four hours a day. I write four hours a day. Do whatever narrations and voiceovers need to be recorded, and that's my work day. And I love it. I haven't worked mm-hmm. a regular job in in years, and uh, don't miss it. I was in the the tech industry, tech side of things, and don't miss it a bit. There's, I'm doing what I love and able to support myself doing it and live quite comfortably so good work if you can get it I guess I wish they would make a paranormal game that isn't like a another like jump scare game yeah yeah I played uh, like a slender man game and I, on the computer now I did do a little bit on the computer I do have a, a Nintendo switch Lite that I got back in June just kind of something to do during the pandemic but I don't get out anyway I'm kind of introverted and hermit by choice but uh, my daughter wanted one for her birthday and uh, ended up getting two of them and kept one for me but um, yeah I've, I've played the Slender Man game and then uh, Five Nights at Freddy's and yeah it's like you said it's all jump scare stuff I'd like to see something more of a like an investigation game. Yeah, where you where you actually go out and you have missions and you do things and it's try to solve things or encounter things that you can't solve or something other than just to, to scare you. That'd be nice. 
that there may be some games like that. I said I'm not much of a gamer. If there are games like that, I don't know about them. If anybody knows of any, let me know. Let me know too. Right. So, so uh, you like John Keel and Lauren Coleman and all them? Yeah, all those guys. Frank Edwards was uh, the one I discovered first. I had, uh, now he'd written some UFO books and things back in the 50s. But then when he got into the, the Stranger stuff, um, probably late 60s, early 70s, and I discovered those books, that really did it for me. Uh, and uh, Stranger Than Science and Strange World, and I think there was one more in there. But uh, it was a lot of stuff like, like I'm into. And uh, the way I discovered his books, uh, I was... I had a lot of problems with allergies and things when I was a kid and missed a lot of school. And uh, I was sick one day and we'd gone to uh, Walgreens to pick up a prescription. And I was just looking at the paperback book rack mm-hmm. and I saw Stranger Than Science. And I thought, oh, what's this? And at that time, uh, Chariots of the Gods and uh, some of those type UFO books were popular. And I looked at that and I thought, well, this is even better because it had, you know, 14 events and UFOs and Bigfoot and ghosts and strange creatures, a little bit of everything. And that just really turned me on and it got me started that way. But yeah, Lauren Coleman, he's got some excellent books, uh, cryptozoology and stuff. I'm, someday I'm going to go visit his museum there in Maine. I have to go there too. And uh, somebody was telling me there's another museum like that in uh, Kentucky. I think it's in Somerset or Monticello. Uh, I believe they mentioned it in Hellier. Have you seen Hellier? Uh, I might have. What's it about? It's a, a series on, uh, I don't know, I think it's on Amazon Prime or Netflix, one of those. It's uh, about people sort of investigating the Mothman type thing and uh, Kelly Hopkinsville goblins. And it ties together a lot of different uh, paranormal and 14 of mm-hmm. And then it, it's great. It's, it's a documentary series, but it, if you or on a platform that has it. Take a look at it. I think I think I watched it on Amazon Prime. There's uh, at least two seasons that I know of, and I think there's another one coming out, or maybe already out. Yeah. But it's, it's it's definitely worth watching. It's it's uh, strange. From 2019, last year? Yeah, I think it did start last year. And uh, they, yeah, they talked about John Keel a lot in there. Um it's just there's just so much going on in there, so many synchronicities, and they get into some like some ritual magic to try to figure out what it is they're supposed to do or why they've been led to this area. Hellier's a place in Kentucky, and um, I don't know. There's just you, you got to watch it. It's it's too, too much to explain, but if you like paranormal documentaries, it's excellent. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. I need to watch this. Yeah, I need to watch this. And uh, what else? I think there's anything else I've seen lately that I recommend. I listen to a lot of shows, a lot of podcasts. Like some I've already mentioned, uh, Where'd the Road Go with Sarai Azkath. He puts on a good show. Another guy you need to have on that could give you a lot of info on Virginia is Sean Graham. He has a show. It's, it's on tonight, in fact. Uh, it's a weekly show called uh, Chasing the Truth uh, Paranormal. Uh, he's out of, I can't remember where he lives in Virginia. But uh, he has a lot of good stuff on there, a lot of Bigfoot and uh, Dogman and ghosts and just paranormal stuff in general. 
he has a really good show. And he has some some good guests. I've been on there a couple of times. He's been I do live streams occasionally. And he's been on with me. And see, so we were talking books. And I kind of got sidetracked there. Um, another brilliant author that only wrote a couple of books is Jim Brandon. His books are hard to find. They're out of print. Uh, one is Weird America, and the other is uh, something about the God Pan, the Nature Pan, or something like that. It's it's even harder to find. But it was one of the first like travel guides to weird places. It came out in '78, I want to say. And of course, Keel, all his writings are good. He did so much other stuff. I mean, he's known mostly for just the Mothman prophecies, but he wrote several other books, a lot of good UFO books and just oddities in general. And then, of course, Charles Fort, he kind of started us all on this path, I think. Uh, his books, just the, the style and the age of them, they can be a little bit difficult to read sometimes, I think, for modern audiences, but it's amazing the amount of stuff that he cataloged. What do you think about John Keel's theory about how UFOs, like, how seem to be dependent on our idea of, like, what's possible? How they change yeah. over times? Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's and, and UFOs tend to, tend to go along that with, I think that's what he based that on, like, you know, when some of your first modern UFO reports were um, balloons and things like that, uh, balloons and mystery airships and things back in the 1800s before there was balloon flight or any kind of airplane or anything like that. And then in the 50s, or late 40s, early 50s, you get into the, the flying saucers and all that. Well, then just a few years later, you know, our technology is up to the point that we're traveling to the moon. It just, it seems like the sightings, and I think that's what he, the point he was trying to make was whatever we're experiencing is just a decade or so technologically ahead of what we currently have. So, hmm. you know, people were, were seeing the triangle craft kind of like I did and then come out with uh, the, the Aurora and some of those planes that were kind of shaped like a triangle and things, you know, later on after that. And it, it's weird. It's like the technology is leading us along or we're having visions of future tech or something like that. A lot of, a lot of interesting things to ponder there. Again, that's type of thoughts that roll through my head about two or three o'clock in the morning sometimes. Think about like how come there's all these stories. Why are these stories about monsters in the world? Like where did it come from, and why they're so similar? Yeah, I think country. a lot of that, it's just, it's a basic human nature. It's something that we're born with to have a fear of things because, you know, way back, it's probably in our DNA from time when we were cavemen or lived in the woods or, or whatever, and that you had to, to watch, you know, to not become food for something else. And then a lot of times these stories are told as cautionary tales. You know, to keep kids from going in the woods. And I asked my dad about that one time. And he said, well, you know, when we were kids, uh, we didn't have electricity uh, other than the things that were battery operated. Like they had, And by battery, they had things that looked like square fish tanks that had, I don't know what kind of chemical solution in it, copper plates and wires, and it could run like a light bulb, you know. But uh, 
the, the house he was born in, they didn't have electricity. He didn't have electricity until he was about six years old. They moved to another house. But he said, you know, there wasn't any television. Radio was spotty, particular over there in that area. Uh, they could listen some at night. But, you know, they lived on a farm. They, they, That was their means of survival. And he said, you know, when you live and work on a farm, uh, the farm day starts early, before daylight. You're out gathering yeah. eggs or you're slopping the hogs or you got to milk the cows or you got to go work in the field. And and he said, you know, basically that I think they had to tell us something at night to scare us, to get us to lay down and shut up and go to bed mm-hmm. so we wouldn't be up, you know, laughing and carrying on all night. And it makes you wonder, but that that wouldn't explain, you know, how it goes back to, say, the, the first nations people and things like that unless maybe they told some of these legends to keep their kids quiet too maybe Spearfinger and some of those it's you know it was told to keep kids close to the the settlement and out of the woods but I think there's there's the truth in there I think there there were things out there and this was used as a cautionary tale because there are things out there that they can't explain so I know it's a lot of uh, stories about like little people in the woods, like gnomes and trolls, and yeah, that's. Uh, I've got a interesting video on my channel that I researched. They called the uh, little people the Smokies, and it talks about people that have encountered traditional fae or fairy folk, you know, or gnomes or elves or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And that's across all cultures, really. I mean, the Cherokee have their little people. There's a a Cherokee word for them that I can't think of and can't pronounce anyway right now. But you have that, particularly in uh, some of the, the Nordic countries. There are places in uh, Norway and Finland where the highway department will build around an outcropping of rock because they don't want to uh, disturb the, the creatures and the spirits that they think live in those rocks, or they're trolls or fairies or, or what have you. And uh, the Smokies also has uh, stories of... Uh, type of spook lights there that they call fairy lanterns and uh if you're it, it, how they react to you it's kind of how you are if you're a nice person and you're nice and don't offend them they can lead you out of the woods but if if they don't like your attitude or you've done something to offend them they can lead you off into the woods to get you lost and um i know one story guy's friend of my father that was hunting up there after night i think he was possum hunting and um, he saw what he thought was another hunter with a lantern, and he was kind of turned around. He thought, well, I'll follow that guy's light and either catch up with him or at least see where he goes. He'll have to go home or to a road or something eventually. So he's following what he thought was another lantern. He said he could see it. It was just, you know, a few yards ahead of him and uh, came to a place where the lantern had gone right across, but when he got to it, he didn't realize it, and he stepped off a, a little bluff there about 12 or 15 feet and fell, and I ended up with a shotgun stabbed down in the ground, plugged both barrels, and uh, I think he sprained his ankle or something, but he could have easily you know, broken his legs or his back or his neck or anything, but he, you know, he, he didn't understand, but then that was what... Uh, a Cherokee person told him that he had, he had disturbed the little people and they were leading him astray and that he's lucky that they only led him over a, a short drop there instead of leading him off into the woods to never be seen or heard from again. <laughs> <laughs>
So there's, there's all kinds of legends and lore out there and different interpretations of it. But again, the, to me, the fun's in the chase. So it's, it's like I've, I've often said that I, I never hope or I hope they never catch a Bigfoot, at least not a living one. So that would be so terrible. You know, they're going yeah. to it and prod it and draw blood from it or whatever it has and put it in a cage and look at it and run tests on it. And yeah, I hope if they ever find one, it's one that's deceased naturally. I don't think they should kill one to study it. And I would hate for them to take a live one. Well, same way. I feel like it's a, seems to be pretty smart. It's, well, smart enough to not get caught on camera that often. Yeah. And uh, according to comedian Nick Hedberg, that that's norm that's the way Bigfoot normally looks. He said Bigfoot is blurry. That's why the pictures are all blurry. Just <laughs> <laughs> having fun. But you never know. I mean, like now that you have these predator creatures, these glimmer men or whatever they are, maybe Bigfoot has some sort of uh concealment, some sort of cloaking, not a technology necessarily, but something they can do like a chameleon, you know, that can blend in with the surroundings and make themselves harder to see. I know, just yeah. so many questions, you know, it boggles the mind. And again, that's that's the fun thing about all this is the, the sitting and playing what if into the wee hours of the morning. Definitely. Well, uh, so when you're writing, has anybody got a little the writing bug reading your stuff? Yeah, a couple people I've, I've sent along the way. Uh, one, Cisco Murdoch that I talked about earlier, um, she had uh, written in with some stories to uh, Where'd the Road Go with Soraya, and uh, she's originally from Alabama, even though she grew up between Alabama and New Jersey, going back and forth to both places. She lives in New Jersey now, but uh, Soraya told her, I've got somebody that I want you to meet, and then he told me, I've got somebody I want you to meet, and he kind of hooked us up. Because we were from roughly the same area. She was northern Alabama and I was East Tennessee. And uh, she had a lot of the same stories and things, a lot of the same experiences. There was one particular, I've got a video called uh, What Did We Run Over? Which is where some cousins of mine and one of my uncles ran over something in the road that, depending on who you ask, because there were witnesses in two cars there, it was either um, looked like a man in a diving suit or a black panther crossing the road. They ran over it, and when they got to their destination, found blood all over their car, went back to see what they'd hit and couldn't find anything. Yeah. And, uh, no reports of uh, any large cats found or any dead scuba divers <laughs> found. It was a swampy area. But she had a similar story that it had happened with her and her mother in Alabama, where something crawled out of a swampy area and they ran over it with their car. So we had some things in common. And uh, the first time she called me, we talked for hours. It was like reconnecting with an old friend that I just hadn't talked with in a long time. And uh, finally, after about the third time that we talked, I said, Cisco, you need to write these down. These are good stories. And I, I kept after about it for about a year. And finally she said, okay, I'm going to do it. But you're coming with me. I'm like, well, what can I do? She said, I want you to come along behind what I write. And then you say something, you know, just like color commentation, you know, like uh, tell an anecdote or a similar story or something. And, and I agreed. I'd never written with anybody and didn't know if I could write like that. But it was it was a good exercise. I'd, I'd read her chapter and then I'd write my thoughts on it. 
And uh, I had to really rein myself in sometimes because I didn't want to overshadow her and her stories because it was her book. But a really, really wonderful book came out of that. It's uh, We're All Children in the Wilderness of the Afterlife, A Guided Tour Through a Haunted Life. Got it right that time. It's a long title. It, I mess it up sometimes. But it, it's a good book. It's uh, available on Amazon in Kindle and in paperback. And so I got her started off. She's working on another book. And then there was another guy, and I think he'd heard me on Word of the Road Go Too, named Mark Anthony Wyatt. He's in the Cotswold area, I think, of the UK. I may have that area wrong, but he's somewhere on the seaside in the UK, wherever the, the Witchcraft Museum is in the UK. He lives in that little town. And uh, he'd heard me and uh, had uh, emailed me and said, I've got a good ghost story I'd like to tell you. Uh, and he, he wrote it out and said to me, that's really good, Mark. And uh, continued on talking back and forth. And then we're actually talking voice on Messenger. And he had all these stories from this part of England that, you know, as far as I know, nobody else had ever heard because a lot of it was stuff that happened to, to him and his family and people he knew, kind of like with my book. And I'm like, you, you got to write this. And uh, finally, he did it. Uh, he's had some success with it. And he's he's got at least two books out now, maybe three. If not, he's working on his third one. Uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt, but yeah, he's got some some good ghost stories and things from uh, I think it's the western western coast of England, that area. Can't remember the name of the little town now, but uh, that that's at least two that I know of. And then I get email all the time. I love to hear from people. My email addresses and all my books, I give it out. It's Steve Stockton, and then the numbers eight and one. Steve Stockton eighty one at gmail dot com. Love to hear from people. Love to hear stories. Um, some of the shorter stories I ask for permission and use those on uh, the uh, Missing Persons and Mystery channel. We do a subscriber or a listener stories where we let people tell their encounters. They send them in and I read them. And uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Strange and Odd is my Twitter handle. And uh, yeah, I'll be friends with anybody. Love to hear stories. I uh, love to, to talk spooky things and. Uh, Maybe I can start a few other people on the, their writing. I'm, I know I've got a few more that are working on things, but nobody that's got books out yet besides those two. So hopefully more on the way. Hopefully. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to inspire people that way because that's, you know, that's that was kind of my impetus was, you know, if I don't tell these stories, nobody will because my cousins and people that I grew up with, they didn't care about any of this. And... Uh, also, a lot of the, the people that I got them from were friends of family and things that are have passed away now. And unless they told them to their kids and things, then those stories died with them. So I've got a, got a lot of little legacies here that I'm carrying on through my writing and enjoy doing it. There's this idea that Spring Hill Jack could be the Mothman. What you, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, there are some similarities, but there's a a couple of other entities that are are even more similar to Spring Hill Jack than there are the Mothman. Uh, one is called uh, the Black Flash. And, yes. Uh, can't remember what city. I made a video about it. It's on um, somewhere in Massachusetts, I think. I think so. And then there was a, a similar entity in uh, Baltimore that they call the the Baltimore Boogeyman. That was again. Mm-hmm. Could, could jump and, and get away and stuff. So I think Mothman is kind of a stretch, but I do see similarities between String Hills Jack and the Black Flash and the Baltimore 
boogeyman or whatever they call him. But uh, I think probably the only real attributes that were similar to the Mothman was the, the, the flashing eyes and stuff. But um, some of the other, the, uh, uh, the, I can't think of the name of the entity, the uh, one that had the head that kind of looks like the Ace of Spades. Um, mm. That wasn't Kelly Hopkinsville. That was one that I'd have to look it up. But um, that entity gave off an odor. Its eyes flashed. And there's there's some similar. Oh, the Flatwoods Monster. Flatwoods. Yeah, I couldn't think of it. I get wound up here sometimes and I kind of forget where I'm going and what I'm thinking about. But lose some of those little names. Yeah, Flatwoods Monster. That one, that one's creepy based on the, the witness inspired drawings of it. I don't know what that was. I've heard people say that that was some sort of demon or fallen angel or something like that. It had that weird shape around its head and then it was wearing like a metallic looking skirt and had claws and made the people oh. sick that was around it. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to run into that one. But again, that West Virginia, you know, not too far from, from Mothman. There's like I said, West Virginia got the cryptids instead yep. of all the other stuff that, that Virginia has. But, but uh, yeah, I've Virginia. been to that area. I've been to the Mothman Festival and I've been to out to the TNT area and the, the, the wildlife preserve and stuff out there. It's, it's a creepy area. And I can imagine, you know, especially during that time being out there and having something chasing your car, you know, and flying, flying along with you, even though you're driving 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. Scratch at the top of your car. It's scary because you know, there's there's part of that that plays into uh, Chief Cornstalk cursing that area too, and a lot of people think mm-hmm. that's how it all ties together with the collapse of the first Silver Bridge and the sighting of Mothman prior to that and after that. And uh, there's other flying humanoids that have been sighted recently, and there's uh, some in Ohio, some in Chicago, some in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, very similar. To a description of the Mothman. So I don't know. Is it one being? Is it several like beings? Are there the tragedies in those areas? Who knows? Interesting thing to watch. Um, Lon uh, Stickler, Strickler. Uh, he used to have a show called Arcane Radio. I don't know if he's still doing that. But he has a blog called Phantoms and Monsters, and he has a lot of winged cryptid sightings on there that he gets reports of. I think there's been like yeah. discussions about um, New Jersey Devil and Mothman possibly being the same creature. Again, it's one of those where, depending on the tale that you hear, there are some similarities, but yeah. I, I think they're different entities. Yeah, other two. They're two different. In the Pine Barrens. And yeah, there's, there's kind of two different tales about that one where the, the lady was supposedly her 13th kid, and yeah. she said the. She couldn't stand any more kids that the devil could have it or something like that and then it came out a creature and uh, d- again depending on the story it either went up the chimney or ran out the door <laughs> so yeah there's just I, I like to think of it as more as a cryptid though than as some sort of demonic human aberration type thing there yeah but uh other depictions of it you know it has wings and horns and kind of a, a mixture of several different pretty much a chimera yeah. 
some of that's not that's pretty much Greek mythology back then with the cryptids is mixing yeah anything with like any animal put wings on it get pegasus and yeah the, and then you have beasts like that some that are just made up you know like the jackalope and yeah. and things like that but then uh somebody have like there's a thing called a snallygaster that's kind yeah. of like that different parts and uh and then some of these other weird creatures it's almost like on south park you know they had man bear pig there's yeah. almost stuff out there like that but then you think about it if you didn't know a platypus existed and you came across that what on earth would you think that was you know it has fur and a duck bill and uh, webbed feet with claws and like what it was like looks like it's made out of leftovers yeah it lays eggs yeah i think it's the only mammal that, that doesn't give live birth it's a crazy animal you're you're really good at speaking do you ever do like any speaking engagements well, I've been asked to, and I haven't really, but I'm planning on it. And then I, was, I wanted to wait for my books to come out in paperback. Yeah. I've been invited to several different uh, paranormal conferences uh, here in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. And uh, I was just kind of waiting. I was originally going to bring them out in paperback by myself, but it's one of those things, you know, it's kind of real time consuming and I'm not real well versed in that part of it and so but when I went with a traditional publisher they did it right away so unfortunately though the books came out in paperback it had already been in the works but they came out in in April about the same time as the, the pandemic and everything started yeah. so there weren't any plans for uh, speaking engagements as for now uh, although there are some people doing some online things uh, I'm not a part of it but uh Adam Sane, who runs uh, Conspiranormal, he's having a Paranormal Realities Conference in October that's going to be broadcast online. And normally that's an in-person thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing some speaking engagements at, at some point. Just don't know when. For now, I kind of see how all this plays out. But uh, as you've noticed, I, I like talking. <laughs> I can yeah. talk a lot. My dad used to me that I uh, said I could talk until I thought of something to say but <laughs> I don't get out much so when I do have interaction I they kind of just open my mouth and my mother that was the thing my mother said you open your mouth and your guts fall out but um especially you get me talking this kind of stuff I can go yeah. on and uh, I listen to it found that if there's anything I enjoy as much if not maybe more than writing dare I say it is is talking about my writing if if I go on somewhere like this and, and talk about what I've done and things I've seen and and uh, things I've heard about and stuff, that's you know just that much added fun for me. I, I enjoy what I do, so uh, having that passion, I mean, it's not like work at all. That's uh, really good. More the speaking, and then just so happened to find out that people like to, to hear my voice for the narrating, and that's got me voiceover work and some stuff and I've done some uh, radio commercials and things like that for other products got a got a free guitar for that I did a radio commercial for music store in Missouri in exchange for a guitar so you know it's it's not well, always like about commercial. Money. It's, it's about the sometimes just the fun you can have and I like getting free stuff <laughs> yeah it's always good for I like free stuff too free food free shirts free anything yeah and um I'm got a, a thing coming up about the Mothman and I, I reached out to uh, Silver Silverbridge Coffee Company which is there in uh, they're in Huntington Report Pleasant West Virginia 
and they're named after the, the silver bridge that collapsed, they've got a dark roasted coffee called a Mothman blend. And I reached out to them and they're, uh, I'm not sure what kind of person she is at the company. Maybe she's the publicist for the brand or something, but she sent me a, a bunch of their coffee, uh, some for me and some to give away. So at some point I'm going to give away some Mothman blend. I've got it in the ground and uh, K-Cup varieties and a nice mug from, from, coffee company there but yeah i love doing things like that i've never thought of myself as a spokesman for anything but it would have to be something strange like that you'll mock me there's a company out here called they're, they're gonna get angry if they hear this but it can't remember if they're the bigfoot roasting company or the sasquatch roasting company because there's both but i, I did some stuff for one and they sent me some coffee the sasquatch coffee and uh there are different varieties like tree knock and things like that. It's all after Sasquatch stuff. So that's part of the fun too, is getting to, to do stuff. And if people enjoy me talk, then more power to them. But uh, I've, I've probably about talked you out here. We're going on two and a half hours. So uh, the record is with um, on the old Art Bell show with uh, Heather Wade. Art was still alive at that time. He was out sick. Uh, she had asked me to, to be on Art's show and uh, yeah. he was actually his producer but she was filling in for him we talked we did like a, a pre-show warm up for two hours and I did I can't remember if it was three or four hours live with her it might have even been five I don't remember it was at least three yeah. and then after the show was over we just kept talking and talked for like another two hours so we talked for seven hours non-stop Three, at least three of which was broadcast. That's the record. Cisco and I have gotten close to that. We've we've talked for several hours before, and uh, we were both on Soraya's show one time, and, and we talked to the point that something had happened with his. Uh, he'd lost control of his recording equipment. We couldn't hear him. He couldn't stop it unless he shut everything off. So he just let it roll. And we actually talked for like a couple of hours before we realized that he wasn't there anymore. And we're like, Soraya, are you there? What happened? Did he fall asleep? So we just kept going. And uh, I've, I've got the gift of gab, I guess, Tanner. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes for good storytelling. That's, uh, I'm a raconteur, storyteller at heart. You know, this, the writer and, and everything else kind of really come second because that's that's the way I tell stories storytelling I want to get better at storytelling it's it's a talent and skill I want to try something you should check out and they're doing it online this year but uh, don't know if you've ever been up there but there's a place there in East Tennessee called Jonesboro and they call it Historic Jonesboro and they'll get mad at you if you don't say Historic Jonesboro but every year at Historic Jonesboro they have um a place there that's called the International Storytelling Center. Well, every year in October, they have the International Storytellers Convention. And uh, it's it's amazing. It, it lasts, seems like it's, I know it's at least a weekend, I believe it's three days. But they have some of the most talented storytellers there from all over the world. I've been to it. I've never participated in it. But uh, it's going to be online this year. It's the first weekend, first weekend, I think, in October. But uh, check that out, and you can learn storytelling from some of the best there. Not just Appalachia, but from the world over. But And I don't know what it is, but something about 
people from our part of the world, the South in particular, we have that great oral tradition. We're, we're all storytellers. We, I don't know if it's part of the, the Native American roots because, you know, there, there was time when they didn't have a language, a written language, so they passed things down through storytelling. But it's 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 definitely a southern thing to uh, to tell tales and uh, stories and and just like human thing. Have to be spooky. I've heard lots of interesting tales that were just you know stories of of days gone by and things. But uh, yeah, if if you're interested in storytelling, definitely check that out. And uh, they have a lot of resources there for for people that want to be storytellers too. Yeah, I also like. His like history and storytelling literature and all that, and it's something about especially oral traditions. Something about it, like the like there's more history into the oral traditions. Yeah, it does, and and I've heard it said that it, it's not the tale, but the person telling it. That you could have, you know, a half dozen people tell a story, and most likely they'll tell it a different way, but each one will put their own unique spin on it and interject their personality and things into it. So you can listen to the same story six times, but be just as entertained by the sixth as you were the first because of the, the way they tell the story or the, the style or, you know, it's, it's just the differences in people. But oh, I, I love to listen to a good storyteller. And there's this idea of like words being spoken have power and, oh, yeah. and the way they're person behind, like you're saying the person behind it is it power like with the what's it called tulpas yeah yeah the tulpas that's the the thought forms and yeah uh there's some really interesting work been done on that um university of north carolina did a project they had a parapsychologist one of the first universities to have a they call it parapsychology but it was paranormal studies area and they did a thing I I can't remember the name of, but they decided to see if they could create a ghost type creature just by th- getting together and thinking about it. And I, I want to say it's like I can't remember the name that they gave it, but it's it's well documented. But they started meeting every so often, and they would give it attributes and talk about it. Well, it's a he, and he looks like this. And in life, he was this, and he did that. And and eventually, they were able to conjure or create something that behaved like a ghost, but that they had made up and just spoken into existence. And uh, I've always found that fascinating. But, yeah, like I said, the, particularly the, the, the First Nations people, Native Americans, Cherokee in particular, there's just certain things that they won't talk about. And... Uh, and that's why it's just like I said it's like just by speaking of it or even thinking of it in some cases like like the raven mockers and some of that stuff you're giving power to it and yeah. bringing it to you or giving it more oomph or whatever to use against you yeah. and um, there's a really interesting case there was a, a series of uh, pulp stories and uh, radio shows back in the 30s and 40s called The Shadow it was uh, like a detective mystery type thing with uh, the name of the detective and the show was Lamont Cranston. Well, the man that wrote those was named Walter Gibson and he lived in New York, an apartment in, was in Greenwich Village. And um, this was a man, he's kind of like me, he wrote all the time. And of course, this was back in the days of the typewriter. 
he would have like five or six typewriters set up and he would be writing a different story on each typewriter. So that way, if he came to stopping point on one, he had five others he could jump over to. But he wrote hundreds of these radio plays and hundreds of stories that were published in the old pulp magazines. And it was to the point where he would have visitors over for, say, a dinner party, and they would see Lamont Cranston. They would see the shadow and the way the character was described. He had like a, a black coat with the collar turned up and had a red scarf and a black slouch hat with the brim pulled down low. They would see this person in his apartment. And they're like, what'd you do, hire somebody to, to play the shadow? And he said, no, that is the shadow. Now, he didn't believe in ghosts or anything, and it was it was a form of topo, but he called it a psychic impression. He said, I've put so much time and so much energy, so much of my literally blood, sweat, and tears into creating this character that I created a psychic impression which came to life. And uh, that's... Uh, Hans Holzer looked into the, that apartment. It's apparently still haunted. And that's one of the things that they see there is this tulpa that uh, Walter Gibson created as a shadow back in the, the 40s, 30s, 40s, whatever it was, either mm-hmm. 40s, 50s. So it's interesting. That's, that's, that's always fascinated me, that story. And uh, I was on uh, Darkness Radio with Dave Schrader recently, and... Uh, He's done some stuff for uh, Ghost Adventures, and then he's got another show now called The Holzer Files. And I mentioned that story. I told that story on his show, and he'd never heard it. And then I sent him a link to it. He's like, oh, my God, this is a Holzer case. He's like, we can totally do this and put it on the show. So I'm looking forward to see what they do with that. Yeah, what's that? Uh, the Holzer Files, I think is the name of it. Holzer Files. Yeah, H-O-L-Z-E-R. Uh, Hans Holzer, he was a, a supernatural investigator, paranormal investigator. Um, things back. He was more active, I think, in decades past. I, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he's one of these that has just file cabinets full of case after case after case of things he's investigated. Wrote lots of good books. On the Trail Channel, you can find it on Hulu. Yeah. I, I haven't actually haven't watched any episodes of it yet. Sorry, Dave, if you're listening. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what they do with that Walter Gibson story. Um, these books you're working on, can you say anything about them? Or it's, uh, uh, one it's, is just pure ghost stories. And it's, again, ghost stories. it's ones I've heard. Um, and I, I want to do a book of just ghosts. And uh, that's one of the ones I'm working on. And then the other one is about the Great Smokies. And it's a little bit of everything. There's Cherokee legends in there. There's hauntings in there. Uh, that was going to be the, the, the subtitle, but it's too much of a mouthful. But I had uh, Myths, Magic, Monsters, Murder, Mayhem in the Great Smoky Mountains. So it, it's a little bit of everything. There's been mm-hmm. some some uh, horrific murders there that have caused uh, hauntings in the aftermath. Um, there's you know, like the legends of the little people and there's Spearfinger and there's Bigfoot and there's the missing persons and stuff. So it's it's got a little mm-hmm. bit of everything in it. And it's um, probably about 95% finished at the moment. I'm, I'm going back through. I, I tend to edit as I write. So yeah. sometimes it takes a little longer doing it that way. But figure that that saves me from having to go back and do it twice but then it'll still go to an editor that was one of the nice things about 
signing on with a traditional publisher because now I have a publicist, I have an editor, I have an agent, you know, all these wonderful things where it was all just me before. And uh, so it, it, it was worth it. Yeah. You ever hear a story about the Smoky Mouthers smoking the mount, Smoky Mountains because there was a, a guy sitting fires in the mountains? about that one in particular now, did that have anything to do with those fires just a few years ago up there that oh, no, this is like half of the mountains oh, this is like wait but i heard a story like wait i was not like 10 years old when i heard oh, okay so sometime no i'll have to look into that that sounds fascinating i know there was uh, some places over there in uh scott county and uh probably in the Fentress County too. I know it was in Scott County. This has been several years ago, a couple of decades ago now, actually, where they had uh, some sort of fire bug that was running around setting fire to uh, outhouses and outbuildings. <laughs> so yeah. some sort of phantom outhouse burner or something, which strange. I don't know. <laughs> it makes you wonder if that's somebody that was just bored or kids having <laughs> disturbed fun or somebody that had something against out it was particularly outhouses but there was other things that got burned too little outbuildings and well houses and corn cribs and smoke houses and things like that but didn't bother businesses or dwellings but just little outbuildings i don't know strange mm -hmm. takes all kinds of people to make a world i guess yeah growing up we had no running water or nothing or electricity probably first six months when we moved here and um we used to get to go to the church and get some water fill up our milk jugs up with water uh, we take baths with the water or hang up with the wood burning stove yeah yeah i've heard my, my dad and mom both talk about that they both were raised without running water they had to get it out of the creek or out of the well and then if yeah. you wanted to bathe in it, you had to heat it up and uh, wash their clothes. I know my, my grandmother boiled her clothes outside in a thing, looked like a cauldron, you know, that, mm -hmm. and uh, with the lye soap that she'd made herself out of the hog fat that they'd rendered from where they'd slaughtered hogs. So had to be self-sufficient back then. I don't think I would have made it back then. <laughs> I guess if you don't know any better, but you really take our somewhat cushy lives now and all our modern conveniences and stuff it i think it'd be tough to to have to survive you know without and you know i've done it camping and things like that but doing it you know on the weekends and for a week or two at a time that's different than living that way you know with, yeah. with no water no electricity i could do it but i, would, I wouldn't enjoy it i don't think i wouldn't enjoy it at all i need, <laughs> I need heat and air yeah, I'm, I'm too strong yeah, i like my air conditioning and I think the older I get, the more the weather affects me. Like uh, Before I moved up here to the Pacific Northwest, I lived in uh, Las Vegas for seven years, and I got used to triple-digit heat out there, you know, 112, 115. Yeah, it's, it was hot, but as people like to say, it's a dry heat. But, you know, so sticking your head in an oven or standing in front of a hairdryer, but you get used to it, you acclimate to mm -hmm. it. But now it's like this summer in particular here, we've been up in the 90s. 
and even broke 100 a couple of days. It just doesn't get that hot here usually. Though. This part of uh, Oregon is usually fairly temperate. It doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. We don't see any big snows or anything. But uh, it's been a hot one this year. I'm so ready for, for fall temperatures. Fall is my favorite time of year anyway. Okay. And I uh, can't get here soon enough. That's the rainy season out here. I like to, what I call my gray days when it's cool and overcast, maybe a little drizzle. And you got that little little nip of fall in the air. I love it. Dude. Yeah, I, I think I like, I think I prefer a dry heat compared to, well, you lived here. It's like when it's in summer here, oh, it's like <laughs> hot. Yeah, the, the last summer and fall that I lived in Tennessee, it was so miserable. It was like being in the rainforest or something. It was high temps and high humidity. The humidity is the killer, you know. And, yeah, and killer. When I first left Tennessee, I went to the Philippines for a year. And then when I came back, I went to Florida for about two years, and then, to, then to Nevada, then to Oregon. But the Philippines is like that. It, it's tropical. The average humidity is 90 degrees year-round and with about 89% humidity. I mean, it's you walk out and you're drenched in sweat. And pretty much the same way in central Florida, too. Yeah, it's but worse in Florida. It'll, it'll cloud over, it'll pour the rain, and then the sun will come back. I remember I was working for, uh, when I lived down there, I worked for Nickelodeon for a while, and then I worked for Disney, also doing a live show production stuff mm-hmm. and uh, one day I'd parked in the, the employee parking lot at Disney and uh, by the time I got out of my car to get to the, the sound stage that I had to go to the heavens had opened up it poured the rain and then about the time I got to the building the sun came out so I walk <laughs> in I'm soaking wet and people are like looking out the windows like it's sunny out there. What happened to you? And I'm like, it rained in the parking lot. <laughs> but yeah, that was the most miserable summer and fall, even into the fall there, that last year that I spent Ooh. in Tennessee. It, it was, everything was just green and lush, and but it was humid. Even in, up into October, it was hot. And I'm just like, man. man so. This last winter, it was awful. Like, it was like, no, like, it, it's like rainy and miserable all winter. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. I'm ready for like snow. I miss snow. Yeah, I, I miss Ball. snow. I like to get out in. Now here I can get it. That's that's the really nice thing about Portland. It's about an hour, hour and a half to the east, northeast. You can be on Mount Hood and snow ski. Same day you can come back, and drive about an hour, hour and a half to the west, and be at the beach. Nice. And it's warm enough you know, that you can actually wade in the water or whatever. So I thought that was cool that you'd have snow or you could have the beach in the same day if you time it just right during a certain time of year. <laughs> but it was kind of that way, you know, back home too. It was cool off. You go up into the mountains, go up in Smokies and go up to Klingman's Dome or somewhere there. That's the highest point in the park. And it's yeah. usually about 20 degrees cooler up there. You ever been to uh, Dollywood? Oh, yeah. Lots of times. I I was going to Dollywood before it was Dollywood. The first time I went there, it was... Uh, Gold Rush Junction. Yeah. That was, it was actually something before that, but I never, never made that. It was Gold Rush Junction in the 60s and early 70s. And then it was Silver Dollar City. Used to go there a lot. And then Dollywood came in. And, uh, yeah, when I lived in Tennessee, I had a season's pass. I actually knew Dolly Parton. I did some work for her. Nice. Uh, I wired her house there in Sevierville for uh, Cat5 Internet, and then I also wired her apartment that she has there at uh, Dollywood for Internet. That, that, that's been a long time ago. 
But yeah, yeah, I like Dollywood. Have, have a lot of fun up there. Dolly's a really nice person. She's a hoot. And, what was uh, your favorite ride in, at Dollywood? Uh, it's not there anymore, and I don't even know if it was there since it's been Dollywood. But when it was uh, Silver Dollar City, it was called the Flooded Mine. Flooded Mine. And uh, I like that one. Now, they still have it at Silver Dollar City in Missouri. Yeah, but uh, you, you can look at it on the Internet. It was kind of a dark ride where you're floating along a little car and you're going into a mine and there's prisoners and they're working and there's explosions and rushing water and stuff. But as far as Dollywood, Dollywood, probably, and I, I don't know if they changed the name or not, but there was a, a roller coaster called Blazing Fury. Blazing Fury. Silver Dollar City. I think Dollywood changed the name of it to something else but yeah they had a coaster too that was pretty good but uh i haven't been there in oh yeah been that. that's, that's 17 good 17 years so i'm sure it's changed a lot yeah i like that one it goes like under the ground come out yeah i like that one and of course the the log flume and some of those that they've had forever that one's been there since it was uh gold rush junction Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairieland Paranormal Podcast. If you're looking for a show that explores all things paranormal, with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts, check out our show online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. If, if it's still there, I don't know if they still have the log flimmer on. Can't, can't imagine really getting rid of that one, though. It's so iconic, but it may be gone. So they haven't, haven't really kept up with it. Uh, there is a place, when I come back, well, the first place I'm going to go, there's a restaurant in Sevierville called Monster Mash Burger. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, I want to go. I've never been there, but I want to go right now. Yeah. So they they <laughs> have all kinds of stuff about cryptids on the walls and stuff, and uh, all their food is themed after the cryptids and monsters and things. Oh, it used to be Monster Mash, but I think it's Monster Mash Burger. But uh, there's some really cool videos of it. And I like, as soon as I get back to East Tennessee, that's one of the first places I'm going. And uh, mm-hmm. I want to go check out uh, the island there in Pigeon Forge. That's all new since I've left. Um, years and years and years ago, that was a place called Porpoise Island, where they had a Hawaiian-themed thing in the Smokies with porpoises and all kinds of stuff like that. But uh, now it's some kind of amusement park, and it's supposed to be one of the best in the country from what I'm hearing about it. So, interesting. Oh, man, it's burgers. Yeah, I gotta go here. <laughs> Did you find the menu there? Boy. Yeah. Uh, they've got some kind of sweet potato fries that have a marshmallow oh. sauce on them. And I was like, oh. I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's a, a friend of mine that has a YouTube channel called um, Camp Bright Moon. And uh, she has a video where her and another guy that's a Twitch streamer went uh, to the restaurant there. And she's going on about how good the burgers and the fries and things are. Um, Bunny Bats is her name. It's Camp, Camp Bright Moon is her channel. She does gameplay. And then she also does like the little bit of urbex and some creepy stories and things too. She's got a great little channel. But uh, yeah, she she lives in I think Asheville, North Carolina, and she travels over into the Smokies and Gatlinburg and Sevierville and Pigeon Forge and all that occasionally and does stuff. But 
I watched a video yesterday where they ate there at the Monster Mash. I'm like, oh, I gotta go there. Mm, I have to go out and get some meat. Good yeah, I the same. I got meatloaf in there calling my name. Well, Tanner, right. it's, it's been a pleasure, buddy. I'm sorry it's been a great I talked your ear off here, but no I, problem. I enjoy talking to you, especially somebody from back home and from the area that's yeah. sort of home to me. Like I said, uh, it's where my dad was from, that area over there. Went to a rival high school. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've been all over in there, Deer Lodge and uh, Clark Range yeah. and Crossville and where people can find you at online what's that where can people find you online oh online um, my YouTube channels are 13 past midnight that's my, my personal channel and then I write and narrate mostly narrate for the missings and missing persons and mysteries channel and then also I'm doing a thing for uh, Zuri uh, Nicole Williams who got us together she runs uh, several books on uh or several groups on Facebook, uh, High Strangeness and uh, Appalachian Cryptids and uh, Missing 411, thing that she does. Uh, she's got a channel that we're doing now called Monster Madness, and it's uh, mainly true cryptid encounters. We've only got three videos up right now. We've got uh, Kelly Hopkins' little goblin, yeah. got, uh, Flatwoods Monster, and I've got a, like a Skinwalker story on there. And uh, I'm narrating those and uh, producing the videos. And then also check out my friend Tanya's channel, Unicorps Tales. She's out of the UK, but I've written and produced just about all of her videos. I think all of them except for one. But I nice. uh, found out I have I enjoy that, I enjoy the production side of things, which I'd, I'd worked in TV and film and stage a little bit when I worked for Disney and Nickelodeon. And that kind of gets in your blood. But yeah. uh, also on Facebook, like I said, I'd love to hear from people. Uh, email address, stevestockton81 at gmail.com. Twitter, at uh, Strange and Odd. And then 13 Past Men, I also have that on Instagram. So a few different names here and there, but you can find me through any one of those. Love to hear from people. Uh, come by and give a listen and, and see what you think. Mm-hmm. Hope people come by. See you. Hope you come back again. I'd like to hear from you again. Yeah, yeah. Anytime, just just let me know. We'll mm-hmm. Come on and talk for a few more hours. And uh, I know there's supposed to be a Virginia episode. We did get some Virginia stuff in there, but I think most of my stories are from somewhere else on this one. But. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. You can find everything you need to know about Monster Legend Podcast at monsterlegendpodcast.com. There you'll find the social media feed, episodes, and where you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. It's all free. It's all available on your computers and mobile devices. Check it out. And thank you. And share with your friends. And don't be afraid to ask me any questions. In any comments or uh, voice message, which you can find in the link down below in the show notes. Thank you. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.